All right. Well, hello there. Uh, welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. We have been on a little bit of a break since the holidays, um, but no fear. We're back. It's 2019. Uh, we decided to choose Super Bowl Sunday to start getting back into discussing good horror films. Don't know who thought of that idea. Um, so, you know, this is what we do here at this podcast. We talk about good horror films, break them open. Uh, talk about the quality stuff in the in the genre of horror. We got to kind of wade through the fucking Annabelles and Slendermans of the world to find like the get outs. Um, but anyway, that's what we enjoy doing in this podcast. If you're new, if this is the first time watching us, uh, we take good horror films, dissect them, and they ask why they scare us. You know, why is it, for example, that Jim hurls whenever he sees non-edible objects being adjusted? Or why is it that I curl up like a little sack of bitch when I watch familial horror films? It, it boggles the mind, folks. Uh, you know, why is it that Shay was scared of clowns, losing agency? But most importantly, why is it that Ben fixates on death and tentacle porn? These are all things we need to explore. Uh, and that's what we do here at this podcast are all questions worth pondering. So our boy, Lars von Trier, I don't know why I introduced him that way. He's not our friend, like our buddy Lars made a new film uh, it, with with a bit of controversy. Uh, surprise, surprise, right? The house that Jack built. So we've, we've previously talked about von Trier's Antichrist uh, on an earlier podcast. I highly recommend checking that one out. It's actually one of our um, most viewed uh, videos on YouTube. But this uh, this film's a bit different. It still managed to piss off a lot of people, make them get up and leave their seats. But uh, that's just a Von Trier film at this point. At least that's how I feel. And maybe one of the things we'll talk about, I suspect we'll talk about, is like Von Trier's level of trollery that he sprinkles throughout a lot of his work. I think uh, it's at the point now where I feel at least like people actually go to buy tickets to go see a Lars von Trier film because they expect that to a large degree. They expect that shock and people to get up and walk out, right? Um, but I digress. We'll probably get into that. So The House That Jack Built, Dante's Inferno meets a claw hammer, man. I mean, it's it's an exploration of violence and art. Um, so the story follows Jack, a serial killer uh, with a somewhat artistic disposition. And over the course of 12 years, we see depictions of the uh, five murders that really developed Jack as a serial killer. Uh, we get his thoughts on these murders. We see how they've developed him, how they've shaped him. And throughout the film, Jack has side conversations with a character named Verge. Can't don't even know what that could be about. I wonder what character that reminds us of. Um, in between all of these depictions of the five major incidents explored in this movie, and most of these conversations discuss uh, or center around discussions of philosophy, ethics, and really a Jack's overall view of the world, art, iconography, things like that. So this is one of those films where we get to see, to some extent, the development of a madman, right? We get to explore the mind a little bit of a madman. And we've done other serial killer films where we do something like this before. Um, some films that offer a similar architecture, I'm thinking of our talks on John Doe in Seven, or maybe Joseph in Creep and Creep Two. So uh, and in fact, actually, now that I think about it, in a future podcast, I think two or th I think two sessions from now, we're going to be doing American Psycho. So there's, there, there's another one. So we've explored the inner workings of sort of the madman before on this podcast, but none from the perspective of Von Trier, who has a tendency to make things about himself. So this would be interesting. Um, I think Von Trier's, personally, uh, I think Von Trier's Antichrist is, is a bit more visceral. It's more violent, more all-around disturbing picture than the house that Jack built. But I suspect this film may have more uh, meat on the bone, as it were, didn't mean for that to be a pun, uh, to fuel some interesting discussions on things like art, aesthetics, ego, things like that. So anyway, this film was Ben's selection. I think Antichrist was also Ben's selection, uh, much to Jim's despair, I would imagine. So obviously Von Trier has something that Ben likes, or at least 
like there's something clearly provocative enough in these films to have you Ben select a, a second Bond Trier film. So I'm curious just to kind of kick this off, like what you enjoyed about the house that Jack built and just why you selected it for the podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's going to be a, a little bit um, removed from the aesthetics. I, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to back up a little bit and at least sort of talk about what I think the best part of the film is. I think that's going to be the best place to sort of get into why I think uh, Von Trier's films, or at least the couple that I've selected for this podcast have been some of the, my favorite films that I've ever seen. So I think this, this film really stands out in a lot of different ways, right? So something is happening here that I find, uh, at least to me, to be very novel and unique in filmmaking. So for mo most movies that I've seen, most plot development, you follow essentially your main character. Um, and it's either from their perspective or from like a, um, you know, a narrator's perspective. And the degree to which I, I think most people get interested in films is to the degree to which they can sort of relate to that protagonist. And so you, you use that empathy essentially to pull the person into the film. They can see themselves there as the main character or someone close to the main character. And it makes it a part of them. It evokes something in them that makes them want to watch that movie. Um, and that's, I think, even true mostly of like horror films that you'll see, right? So like if you go to most horror films, you'll have the the protagonist, which is kind of like the underdog, right? They're running away from this, this monster, this obstacle in their path. Um, and hopefully at the end of the movie, most of the time they escape and they sort of triumph, good triumphs over evil, where the person watching the film projects themselves into the position of good. It's also really similar when you watch something a little bit different where the main character is going to be the bad guy, right? So it's like maybe TV shows like Dexter or maybe even American Psycho where there's still something there that that I think pulls at your empathy with, with Dexter in particular. It's because he's attacking bad guys, right? Like, so his dad t taught him to use this, this evil in him to try and bring some overall good to the world. And for that reason, I don't think it really clashes with our sensibilities very much. And we can still somehow view him as kind of like this underdog sort of fighting against the larger evils of the world for sort of this like overall positive net impact. But what's going on differently, I think, in this particular film that I don't think I've really ever seen before is that this empathy relationship that people usually use to sell films seems to be totally absent. I think that's by design. I don't think you're intended to empathize in the least bit with Jack. He is the he's the main character. You're not supposed to empathize with him, but in order to tell the story, uh, Von Trier has very obviously portrayed uh, and depicted all of the events from Jack's point of view. But the beauty of this is that he is forcing, he's using uh, his cinematography and like his techniques and and the way he set up this film to force Jack's perspective onto you, totally bypassing empathy and. And essentially making you take that perspective that you'd normally take using empathy, but with somebody you find utterly reprehensible. And for this reason, I think that's why you see a bunch of people walking out of the film. It's not the violence in the movie that's all that exceptional. Like, obviously, we just talked about, like, Antichrist is more so. Um, the Human Centipede, uh, Hostile, Saw, like, all these movies are much more violent, even ultra-violent to a degree. And people love them. People absolutely love these movies. But I think they hate this one because it, the violence is portrayed in a very realistic sense. It's cold. It doesn't have the dressing of music or of, of loud chainsaws or chase scenes. It's just presented to you cold on a platter from the perspective of the killer who views this as art because of his own narcissism. And it's so uncomfortable and disturbing that that's why you have this emotional reaction. And because he sort of 
subverts the typical processes of, of what we would consider filmmaking in the movies that we see and does it in such a, a impactful way and it has to has to be considered impactful like he has to have done a good job because of the reactions that you're seeing to this film that's why i really enjoy what he does because he's not just he's not doing it for that big box office he's not doing it in the normal way he's he's bringing novel techniques and ideas to film and they're so potent and so effective that people completely miss miss it they miss the point <laughs> they don't recognize it because they can't see through that initial reaction of oh my god what is this that i'm experiencing that's where you stop Anyway, so that's that's kind of like a, a roundabout way of saying that this is really what I enjoy. I think about Von Trier's films in general, and this one in particular, is because of just kind of like the the sort of like that that unique thing that he does, that unique way of bringing a film home and and making it, I think, into something that could be considered art. Yeah. So before, uh, before I hand it over to Shayra and Jim, I I I have a particular section of my notes where I, I think I kind of hit on what you were saying too when I was watching this. I wrote that the film feels experimental to a large degree. It feels different. And there's a sense of like purposely really pushing an envelope in this movie. And I think you nailed exactly why that is the case. That connection with the moviegoer is very different here. And I also put in my notes that this is one of the most like direct moviegoing experiences that I've had. And I, I think what I mean by that is like, you can't watch this movie and be bored to any degree. It's And it's a long movie. It's like two and a half hours, right? It, I think it's uh, longer than that actually. But it's it's a very like, it elicits something from you. If you're if you're a, a normal functioning, non-sociopathic, non-psychopathic person, and you're watching this movie, it's going to, it demands a response from the viewer. And it, it just felt a, a very abrupt, uh, direct movie going experience. And it felt very different. It felt different to me than even some of Lars von Trier's previous films. Maybe it'd be interesting to think about that because I feel like in some of his other films, I can definitely feel for the the protagonist in Melancholia. I, granted, I've only seen three of his movies, so I'm not as well-versed, but like Melancholia, e even in Antichrist, there's some, you can empathize with the family that loses their child, but this movie's very different. I think you, you hit it on the head as to why. Um, what, do, what do the rest of you guys think? Before uh, I go into what I think, I honestly thought that he chose this because it reminded me a little bit of the Seventh Seal, where you have like this is you're you're dead and you're talking about what your past was with you know the person who's taking you into that. So I I thought it just coincided with your idea of like before you die you get to have a conversation with somebody and discuss your life. So I thought probably what drew you in, but you didn't say that. So I'm like, oh, I'm kind of surprised you didn't bring that up. That's interesting. That is interesting. That is that's a theme in a lot of his films, isn't it? Whereas I scream at my mommy issues, I think he likes to talk to death. We're learning things, folks, about ourselves. That's interesting. Ben's next selection is going to be Albert Brooks's "Defending Your Life." Uh, Ooh, nice. <laughs> let's um, see that. I want to see that show. <laughs> yeah. Let, let, uh, on the next episode of Deadly Analysis, we talk about defending your life in '80s rom com. Um, yeah. Okay. I like. I like what you're saying, but, but you, okay. So you, you, let me, let me sort of repeat what you were saying to make sure that I understand it. And if I'm wrong, Ben, please correct me. But you think that the strength of this film is the, or the effect of this film rather is its ability to bypass empathy. And I guess, I guess what, I, for what purpose, what's the, what's the end game in that? If I can, try to figure out a little bit more what what you're talking about sure so um what i'm talking about right now i think is the technique that he uses that i find particularly interesting 
Um, but I don't think the technique in itself is sort of like the end game. I just, I'm really impressed with the way that he was able to use that, or at least in my interpretation, right? Like maybe I'm totally wrong and I'm reading things into it, obviously, but in my well, interpretation, no, I, I, I think you're right. Like, I think he's okay, definitely okay. bypassing empathy. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I'm just wondering. So when I, when I watched the film, I, I got a sense of that, although I, I think we can quibble on a few instances when we are supposed to identify with the protagonist. Um, and, uh, they, like he, I think that in the first incidents, uh, um, specifically and especially positioning that right. one first we're supposed to, like she's so fucking annoying that we kind of it, like we're not that i'm saying that we would we would hit a person with a jack in the face but uh you know there's there's a moment there's a there's a dark side of all of us that might be like oh god bitch will you please just shut the fuck up and in that sense it, it seems like he is playing with our empathy but i so uh, that aside and quibbling about specific scenes aside, uh, where I, I see what you're talking about. I just don't know why that yep. technique would be employed. Yep. 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 Okay. So um, I'll get there in a second to address that first. That's, that's actually a really good call out. And I think uh, one of the biggest examples of, of what I'm talking about here about like, we're supposed to be, we're, we're, having Jack's perspective forced on us because like, obviously that conversation that he has with Uma Thurman is, is really bizarre. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's staged in such a way that, I mean, it, it definitely looks like she is asking to be killed and even seems happy when he finally seems to decide to do it. I really think that's just a product of us seeing that incident through his eyes. And I do think that Von Trier is setting up the scenes in that way to that extent because of the end of the movie where we see him walking through these tunnels and stuff, but then they sort of like get shifted visually to scenes that look more like, um, like you would see in Dante's Inferno. Right. So it's like, you have this, this literal shifting of the way scenes are being portrayed to show, I think to give you a clue <clears throat> that, that a lot of what we're seeing in the movie is just a product of that perspective. So maybe we are supposed to like empathize with, with him a little bit in the beginning of the movie. That's, that's really a good point. But I do think that conversation is key in understanding the nature of the scenes that we see for the rest of the movie um, after that. Okay, so the reason that I think he's using this technique um, is because it's so effective at eliciting a particular kind of emotion. Um, one of the other big elements that I, I noticed a lot in this movie is the juxtaposition between things that are, are um, utterly reprehensible with uh, things that are like kind of funny. And you find it I think so you're supposed to find it extremely uncomfortable that you find yourself kind of like laughing a little bit at certain things, but also like super disgusted at other stuff. And it's all sort of like jammed together. Um, and the, I think the only reason that works is because the the violence is served. So, so cold and without, without feeling without a, um, an emotional response from Jack, because that's what we expect from a psychopath. He's not going to be viewing this in a, a passionate way. The killing is happening. It's, it's presented to you cold and then paired with, like weird, random, awkward humor. And I think the technique is is the only way to do that sufficiently to elicit the level of perhaps like confusion and disgust and intrigue um, that is meant to be evoked from this film. 
And I don't think it's really for any other purpose from that. Like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of the movie that does seem to be a self-reflection of Von Trier himself. And like, you can kind of go into um, sort of that discussion as well about like how he has maybe put a little bit of himself in the film, maybe as Jack, um, some of his controversies about misogyny and so on and so forth, that's sort of laced in there. But and I don't think any of those, what's that? And Nazism as well. I just want to throw that one in there too. And Nazism. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, all that's sort of rolled in there, but I don't think it's for any particular narrative purpose. Like, I mean, at the end of the movie, obviously, it's just, it ends so so randomly and abruptly, there's no resolution. He quite literally falls into the depths of hell and presumably doesn't escape, and that's it. I think it's it, it's just meant to evoke um, a certain palette of emotions, much like a visual art. Like much if you were to like go in- icons. Much like an icon, right. Like, I mean, if, if you're gonna view something maybe in a museum, you see, a painting it maybe isn't necessarily beautiful aesthetically but it evokes something within you i think that's really kind of kind of the goal there i think it's it's a similar idea so the the, the end game would then be the the visceral response of revulsion yeah exactly and i mean like when when lars reacted to people walking out of the film and he says well i'm not sure that they hated it enough i think that's really quite true i don't think he's being um i don't think he's being sort of like sarcastic or you know uh, whatever, I think that's that's a genuine response to not understanding if people really got enough of a reaction out of it because that potentially, I think, was the goal. Sure. Um, Can I be the weirdo of the group real quick? Go ahead. What? I saw this as a comedy, a black comedy. I was laughing the whole time. I, I thought it was uh, mocking the serial killer and he used every single serial killer uh story to mock and ridicule all that serial killers are their narcissism it doesn't match up with the reality they are complete and total losers at everything they do in life they never amount to anything they're sad they blame everybody else they never can accomplish life's goals and they uh, inevitably end up just the biggest losers of the entire human race and it's all meant to mock and joke with them. And and the real point where it hit me was when you see him at the mirror <clears throat> with pictures of different facial expressions where he's trying to emote a certain way. And I've actually seen Jim Carrey do this exact thing with him trying to be this clown, this hilarious, silly clown. And I, I was like, it, he's making a, a clown joke about serial killers. And you should think he's dumb. You should think he's horrible and revolting and uh, and he's pathetic. He can't even build the house. He's always going to be an engineer who could never be an architect. Ha ha ha. Look at you. You're never going to accomplish anything. Ha <laughs> ha Look how pathetic you are. For all um, the serial killers watching this, share his address. Is <laughs> I knew that saying that, I even thought about that. I'm like, oh, they're going to see that as a, as a possible like, hey, come over here. And But here's the thing. Uh, if that is something a serial killer wants to do is come and kill me, I still get to laugh at you because my life has not been loser life. You have the loser life and you're just a big fat loser. That's what Lars von Trier is literally saying. He's like, ha ha, you're a loser no matter what. Even if you kill me, ha ha, my life was still better. Um, I, I just saw it as a mockery of serial killers and people that glorify them and make them into these beautiful hot guys like ooh, this guy was an attractive serial killer he was real smooth and he was real cool and all the girls liked him it's like this weird thing that's happening in our culture now where we glorify the serial killers and he's just kind of pointing his finger at everybody mocking them he throws in some self-deprecating humor at himself too and it's just mocking everybody and everything and i, I just saw it as pointing and laughing honestly um 
that's my weird take on that film. <laughs> Sorry. It's definitely in there uh, to me. I, it's definitely a, a big part of the movie. I I'll, I'll let Jim hop in. Uh, I, to me, it was a means to an end. Like what you what you're describing, Shayra, is very thick in the movie. I think it's totally uh, it's totally there. I saw it as a kind of deconstruction of the creative process of Jack and Von Trier, like the failure of um, Jack to build a house as you know, is the idea of a failed architect that still seeks to build, right? It's like the deconstruction of the creative process, the pains of creating works of art. There's a sense in which Jack is an artist with no real masterpiece, at least to the end of the film, when he constructs that house of bodies. So that's very similar to Von Trier wondering, you know, it, it, what what is his icon? B building something meaningful, the architectural frustrations. These are things that Jack shares that I think Von Trier maybe also um, hinting that is something that he faces in his life too. So I think it may be, I'll say a repudiation, but it's it's a um, it's an exploration, I think, of failure um, seen through the eyes uh, explicitly, or seen um, not through the eyes, but pushed onto the mode of it, the mechanism of a serial killer, as a way, I think, of maybe looking at Von Trier's inner workings when he creates his his pieces. You know what I mean? So I saw it, but I I basically saw it as Von Trier talking about himself like here's why i'm a loser here's why i struggle and then there's these other scenes of pure ego where he puts his own you know scenes from his own films in so this is one of the things i wanted to pick your brains about but i'll do that later i want to kind of talk about what there's there's both of these two very extreme things in this movie and i think i know i, I have a i have a way of unpacking why i think that is but anyway i saw what you said and, and just thought was you know von trier's way of essentially talking about the deconstructive component of his works you know what i mean so anyway go ahead jim yeah okay um i like i almost wish that uh i I almost wish this was the movie that uh, the same movie that I saw was the movie that you guys are talking about um, because oh, we're all talking I, about Free Willy. That's the movie where oh, you're on the same page with us, right? Like, you're, yeah, I missed okay. the email. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I, <laughs> I think it's funny. Like, I like this. It's an interesting idea that, that Ben proffered. I, I want to sort of respond to as many of these, uh, these strings of conversation that we have going. Um, I, you know, this idea that Ben proffered about uh, bypassing empathy, I, th I think that's an interesting idea. I wonder, however, about the ethics of that. I wonder about the ethics of n not including a sense of empathy either with the protagonist or the victims of the protagonist's actions. Um, does that then make us make watching this film a a darkly voyeuristic uh, experience in, in, in ways that as an audience member, the most ethically defensible thing to do is actually walk out. Um, is is the film itself, the, the existence and the creation of the film itself an ethical exercise? Um, that, I, I, I wonder whether or not that's a valid question to ask as we as we sort of explore this this idea. What is more, um, I agree with Shayra that there's sort of a darkly comic moment, and and that she also you're right that she's uh, that he's he's including so many different serial killer stories, and whether or not that's a mockery or not, I I I would like it to be even more. 
um, obvious of its satirical intent. I think that everything that you were talking about vis-a-vis -vis this film is something that I'll, I'll talk about in two sessions when we talk about American Psycho, because I think that is intentionally a comedy, intentionally a satire. It's a horror film and a satire that's really poking fun at a lot of aspects of our culture in pointed and, and, uh, and obvious ways, ways in which it, you don't, we, you can't confuse this from being, that you can't confuse this, uh, the message of this film from being like, oh, that's really bad to, yeah, but it's also kind of badass. Um, and I think in, in particular, um, the Nazi icon iconography that's used in uh, American History X, which is clearly a film that is saying Nazis equal bad, but also for neo-Nazi communities has been sort of co-opted to be, oh yeah, but it's also kind of badass. And I'm stealing a little bit from Lindsay Ellis's video about uh, about Mel Brooks there, um, sort of cite my sources. Uh, so I, I wonder, I wonder to what degree this might um, unintentionally uh, miss its mark in its mockery. Uh, something that I think might be. Uh, less that that American Psycho might be less prone to, perhaps. Um, and then, as you were talking, Noah, this this idea of uh, von Trier and and art. I think we can spend an entire hour talking about the artistic symbolism that's going on here. And and so I'll sort of leave it there and and let the rest of you respond before we start jumping into this film's treatment of art and uh, aesthetics, qua aesthetics. So. Can yeah. I? Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. I want. I want to jump in on the ethical point there. I think that is really interesting. <clears throat> um, leading up to this, um, I actually had quite a, quite a different um, interpretation of what might be going on here ethically. Um, so I think through his presentation of the violence without um, any kind of like window dressing, essentially without like music or without fanfare, without passion. Um, and evidenced, of course, by the reaction that people have obviously had to it. Like, there are a lot of people who refuse to see this film on principle. There are people who walked out uh, during film festivals, even though there were, I think there were also people who did uh, give standing ovations. But the, the it was quite polarizing, let's say. Um, I think it's having its intended effect that way. And I don't think uh, it in any way sort of glorifies the violence or makes it seem cool because you know, once again, like, we're, it's not it doesn't look badass. And even if you were to maybe think the artistic element of what he's doing seems cool there's enough mockery there i think to to sort of downplay that and make him look like like sherry was saying like just a total kind of not not really someone to be looked up to you know what i mean like i mean it's very obvious that he's trapped in hell it's not something to be admired this is something terrible that happened to his life he he was on a path he lost his way and now he's stuck in hell when you take that and contrast it with a lot of the horror movies that we see today, or even just our general uh, approach to violence in which violence seems to be quite, quite, quite glorified, I think in our society, I think it's the much more ethical approach to take to just show it as it is, because this way, at least we're disgusted by the violence instead of looking at Zac Efron as Ted Bundy and thinking, God, like, man, he's really attractive, man. He's really cool. Let's watch this movie. Let's be excited about this movie. When you're actually talking about somebody who murdered 30 plus women. <laughs> You know, yeah. Someone mentioned right. that in the chat. I think you're, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about just that point while while Shabra's talking about how we're kind of celebrating Ted Bundy in 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 a 
dark way and and how unethical i mean if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about uh which is more unethical lars von trier's film or celebrating that zach efron playing ted bundy i'll certainly say that celebrating zach efron playing dead ted bundy is far more unethical but still like as we're as we're trying to unpack and figure out this film i i thought that that was a an interesting a, a needed point to be bring up uh whether or not this film in its own in its very creation is an unethical exercise um can, and, I, can, I, can I hop onto that point because yeah, i have please. a question about that so so my question would be what's what's so wrong with that? Like, I want to kind of explore that. Like, like what would be the end all, like worst possible case when we explore a film to which there are, it, just in virtue of watching it, this idea of something unethical. A, a good example of this, maybe even a much more visceral violent example, and a terrible example is um, a Serbian film. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that. If you have, don't watch it. Or if you haven't seen it, don't watch it. Um, but that that was maybe one of the only ones where that became an issue for me. It took me that far to get that far down the rabbit hole of uh, terrible things I shouldn't see with my eyes to to get me there. This film, I, I don't think had that. But so, but uh, the question's still relevant even then. Um, to you, Jim, what is? I mean, perhaps that's something that ought to be explored, right? Like perhaps maybe there's something interesting we find at the end of that tunnel where we go against our better judgment and we do the unethical thing. I actually, it gets into an interesting maybe difference in ethics between all of us, how we view moral obligation and things like that. I, I don't want to have this, you know, sort of devolve into like axiology and discussions of morals sure. and things like that, but, but you're kind of pushing it. So I do want to kind of push back and say, so, so yeah, what's the end all here? Like what could be so bad? I'm, I'm genuinely curious to you. So, uh, I, I mean, my mind goes to, and I'm going to try to, I'm going to draw another example, and this might be a, a, a rabbit hole that we might not want to pursue too long, but I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me about a Yoko Ono exhibit in which uh, she would sit there uh, as performance art. She would sit there and she would invite people to come up and, and take off her, uh, cut off her clothes, cut off a piece of her clothing. And the end all, the, the, the point of this art exhibit was look how unfeeling and terrible and awful we human beings are that we would do this to this person. And I asked my friend, you know, did you do this thing? And he's like, yeah, of course I did. I, I was participating in her art. And to my mind, I thought that that was a, like, my friend's a wonderful person and blah, 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 blah. But I would not have done that because I don't want to be one of the people who is without empathy to the point that I would uh, participate in an artistic project that is meant to make human beings look like a bunch of fucking assholes. Same here. If you are, if your job as a filmmaker is, or your aim as a filmmaker is to place me as the viewer in a, in a position where I am sans empathy, that I'm with, that I'm without empathy, in order to prove how unempathetic I and human humanity writ large is, then I don't want to participate in that process. Um, does that make sense? Does it? it, it, it no, it, it totally makes sense. That's your reasons for 
that's your reasons for not wanting to engage in what you take to be unethical. And I totally understand that. I mean, I have, I, I'm the same way. I, I mean, I think all <laughs> non-sociopathic people are the same way. They, they stay within the confines of their ethics for the most part, right? So I get that, I get that. But I guess, so let's use the example of the Yoko Ono exhibit. Perhaps, um, you know, even, it, it, and I think you're right, the, the moral, maybe moral ambiguity, but moral problems involved with a scenario like that, even with those, perhaps your friend learned something about himself that he otherwise would not have known when he went up and ripped off a piece of her clothes. Maybe that triggered something in his head to think, I feel shame for a, for the, a, a very odd shame I've never felt before. And that brings up these other issues. You know, there's a, a, a whole bunch of different ways what, are, what seemingly unethical acts can accomplish for a person, maybe not initially, but down the line. So and I, I'm not saying that necessarily would happen, but my point is it, it's a vehicle I think worth exploring even if it's uncomfortable precisely because it's a form of art. I mean, violence and art, if we're gonna go to the issue of Von Trier in this film, violence and art are inexorably linked in history. And I mean, we can, that, that's also a rabbit hole. Yeah. We can go down, right? we, yeah, we all know this. It is a kind of, I mean, it exists in the world of aesthetics. So I get your reasons for not wanting to engage in um, you know, art pieces or films or maybe even literature, however you want to cut it, that may have these ethical issues. But what I'm saying is perhaps we can agree that they're unethical, but still worth, they're still vehicles of exploration that are worth taking seriously and worth engaging in, even if they go against our moral paradigms and better judgments. Maybe there's something at the end of that tunnel that's worth looking at. And when I watch a Von Trier film, I really get that sense. I get that sense with Antichrist. I, Antichrist was one of the most viscerally violent films I have ever seen in my life. I have not forgotten half the scenes in that. And I felt like even though it was hard to watch, it made me think of very uncomfortable things like we talked about in that podcast that were new things that I didn't really ever think about, sort of the reversal of the Edenic world and how that related to the violence and all of that stuff that was in that film was stuff that, um, you know, I, I chose not to watch Antichrist for years because I had heard it was so bad and I had something like an ethical problem in turning it on because I just felt from everything I heard, I don't think I'm the sort of person who really wants to watch this. And then fucking Ben, who's clearly the most nihilistic son of a bitch I've ever met, said, we're watching Antichrist. So, I mean, so I, I it's not antithetical to, like, I'm agreeing with you, right? And I'm saying, yes, let's say watching particular things, we'll qualify this, watching particular things may be against our moral paradigms or our better judgments, but perhaps they're still worth doing that. Sure. And uh, let me let me also say that this is not to, my my comments are not to shit on Ben and his movie taste. Movie I mean, <laughs> I say this with all due respect and, and all of that. And, but, you know, I, you messaged me on Twitter, Ben, and said, uh, notice you haven't seen uh, uh, How's the Jack Built. Uh, would you do it for a show? And if it weren't for this podcast, no, I would not have watched How's the Jack Built because I do think that if we go back and look at that uh, Antichrist podcast, I specifically said I would never watch another Lars von Trier film. Well, I watched another Lars von Trier film. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, thank I, you, Jim. It, I just nuts, not to interject <laughs> there, but thank you. <laughs> it's because I love you, Ben. Um, yeah, so I. Uh, 
well, I, I mean, I think this, it's an interesting conversation to have in and of itself. And it's an interesting question to have whether or not we are crossing ethical boundaries just by watching a film. Um, and just by Can I uh, interject with that Please ethical do. thing? Um, okay, so I think it's an extremely ethical film, and here's why. Um, it is explaining to you what a person who lacks empathy thinks like and acts like and does. It is very important that people are aware that this is how a psychopath thinks. And it is also very important that we take away this idea that the victims of these psychopaths are somehow going to be thwarted by someone's charming good looks. No, every single one of these chicks that were attacked by him were, he was trying to paint in his own version of the story, which we can't even really trust his version of the story because he's a, a jerk narrator who can't function in society. But if we take even what he says, to heart and try to take it as true. He paints all these girls as dumb, stupid. He he uh, paints the first one as as being kind of a bitch, but she was on to him. Uh, the the second woman, uh, she wasn't about to let him in. She was constantly asking questions. She knew he was full of it, right from the very get go. Um, and then even when you get into um, you know the woman and her children out in the in the field, she even seemed a little kind of uh, this seems kind of not right and he did a long go with her like he had been going with her for a while and even the chick that he was very close with he called her simple all the time because he had problems with himself he was an insecure little man who thought men are just being attacked for being men in the world and it's no fair and we just have it so hard and so he needed to talk down to women and see them as stupid to make himself feel powerful but in the end of this whole thing we know all these women were onto him. They weren't falling for his crap. They weren't. They weren't buying it. They were way smarter than him. Yes, they ended up dead, but they were way smarter than them than him. And at least they're ethical people, and and, and they have something worthwhile that they gave to their community and to the world that they lived in. And and the other thing it points out is that none of these neighbors, none of these people cared what happened to these women. They were not paying attention to the women in their lives. And I don't know how much Lars von Trier is involved in the Me Too movement, but it reeked of that. I mean, you have uh, women that are victims. Nobody's looking into it. And they're being painted as too dumb. And it's no, th this guy was a monster. I love I, I love your perspective on this because it's such a reversal of like what the critics have thought. They say it's misogynistic. You're you're looking at this like the complete opposite way, which I totally dig. Um, you're very hard on Jack, which I I find very interesting. You, that's a centerpiece for you in this movie. Is that Jack is kind of a fucking idiot. I that's I, I never would have guessed that that. I mean, it's certainly in there, but it's. It's very, it's laid on very thick to you. And you mentioned at some point that Jack has this idea that like men are, there's a, he says this, right? In the movie at some point, it's very, very MRA. It's like an MRA talking point. Men are always guilty. Why is it that men are always guilty? He says something like that, right? Like women are innocent and men are always guilty. That's interesting. Um, it, he it, it was does, saying this knowing well, he's killed day. 60 people. Yeah. 60 people he's killed and he's like, I'm always in trouble. It's always me. And you guys are all innocent. Yeah, they are innocent. They're not murdering sixty people, you dumbass. Like, are you are you really this dumb? Like, you're you're an idiot. <laughs> like, he's so stupid. I'm sorry. I just saw him as an idiot. I, I know that's just, a thing with me. Just as a quick aside, since you brought up Von Trier and the Me Too movement, Bjork has uh, issued some allegations against him during Dancer in the Dark. He has been a, uh, a he's been a a 
highlight of the Me Too movement as as uh, a result of accusations. So then maybe Jack is really him, and he really is attacking himself. And I it, mean, yeah, I mean, self-deprecating. Yeah, right. I mean, self-deprecating. I mean, that proves that he has far more self-reflection than I ever thought him capable of. That he's willing to write an entire film downing himself. Um, that's that's sort of an interesting kind of. I mean, is is it seems that way to me? He even showed reflections of his own films, and then he was when when you have people talking about. Uh, what is, you were even discussing this, what are the ethics of putting this kind of stuff out there? Are you responsible for any bad actions that happen because this art has been viewed? He's even attacking himself for that very thing that you're calling him out for. He even called himself out on that, showing clips of his own film. So I, I think he is very self-reflective. I don't think that that necessarily erases what he did that was wrong or makes him a good person or, or even an ally, but at least he's aware of how he fits into this puzzle that we call humanity it's um. almost it's, it's almost explicit actually i have in my notes here in one of jack's monologues it's sort of it's it's very fast and i forget which of the thousand and ten monologues it fucking is in but um uh, von uh, uh jack, when one of jack's monologues he states something like artists expel their demons through their work maybe that's the lens to which we see this entire film even with the Me Too stuff we're talking about, right? I One of my questions that I wrote here, literally for us to discuss, is like, what does Jack's perception of women say about Von Trier? And that's kind of what we're going into. Maybe he's um, clinically self-reflective, uh, you know, uh, very interesting to think about. Um, but it's interesting to hear you sort of push how either, however we cut this, either how hard Von Trier is on Jack and what that means, or how hard Von Trier is on himself, like realizing these things. Yeah, that's interesting. But that's not exonerate. That's not an exonerating thing. No, I, let's not. Yeah, let's let's be absolutely clear about this. Just oh, because, he's exonerated. He can beat as many women as he wants now. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, 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 well, I, I hope Montreal. that I made that clear. I am in no <laughs> way saying that anything he's ever done is is right, but. We yeah. can at least admit he is being very self-reflective in this piece. Yeah. And that is a really hard thing for most people to do. That is a really hard thing. That is a really hard, uh, like one of the things that I've, I've found that so often happens even with myself is just looking back at the type of person I was back just even 10 years ago and going, holy crap, what the heck was up with that chick? <laughs> you know, like this is not okay. Um, you know, cause I was, pretty hardcore, you know, conservative Christian, like, I hated myself for being gay, blah, 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 like, you can go on and on. Um, at a certain point, I got self-reflective. And, and now I look back at that person and go, my gosh, what was I thinking? And and I know that as I get older, it's going to continue, right? Do you think that Von Trier has taken this to the level of what was I thinking? See, I that's, don't that's, know. Yeah. See, I don't <laughs> I think he has. Speak to that. I don't know anything about yeah. him. I, I, I just I, know about his art. Yeah, but I, I think in the film, maybe this goes back to Jim's point, Jim, I'll, I'll let you hop in, but I, I don't think he's there. I, I don't get the vibe in this film that by the end of it, it's a self-reflective piece that's apologetic to any extent. I mean, even if we see Jack falling into the pit of hell, that's just an acknowledgement of where this road leads, right? Like what becoming this sort of person leads to. It's not like, it's not, 
there's no redemption in this movie. There, and if we're understanding this film to be a kind of exploration of Von Trier, then Von Trier has made a movie where there is no, uh, there is no coming out of this. There is no good thing to be learned, to be gained. So, I mean, what does that say about Von Trier? Is it just a reflection with no moral clarity at the end of it for what that means, for who he is, for what J Jack could have become? I mean, we see a scene, maybe the closest we get to this is we see the scene where Jack is on his way to hell and he sees the field with everyone, you know, uh, basically using the, the size and, and you know, cutting the, the grass and it's his heaven, right? And he, he has a single tear, it's the first time he has a tear, but even then it's about him. It's about what he misses, what he wants, where he wants to be forever. So it's interesting to sort of ask, is there a kind of reflect, is there a good reflection on the part of Von Trier or a bad reflection on the part of Von Trier? See, I, I think there's another scene that really sort of illustrates the point too, is um, maybe his second incident where he drives back to his freezer with the body, um, you know, and there's the blood trail and he's talking to Verge about the the implications of the fact that there was a massive rain that came and washed all that away and it wasn't really one of like redemption he didn't think he was divinely blessed you know it wasn't anything like that it's just more like here's the evidence of what i did and here here are the things that i did i did this terrible thing maybe not even terrible here's this thing that i did it's just the facts i can't believe i haven't been caught <laughs> i haven't i can't believe that this hasn't come down on me to the full extent of probably what it should have and that's like with that's the story probably... of the reeds when he was a little boy and leaving that trail and wanting somebody to fo follow the trail and catch him. I think that's a huge theme in this is wanting to get caught, um, uh, desiring that humanity does have justice in it. And that's one of the things that he finally comes to the conclusion of when he, he kills his girlfriend is that he's like, no one's here to save you. Nobody gives a crap about you. Go ahead, yell, scream all you want. Nobody cares. There is no justice in this world. It's horrible. I've been trying to get justice. I mean, he even went out and yelled at the cop and was like, I killed 60 people. And the cop's like, okay, whatever. J drives away. Like, he's like, freaking, where's the justice in this world? And I almost wonder if his narcissism and his ego is, is just begging for him to be the one that brings to light that there's no justice in this world, that there is no, uh, there is no place for redemption and there is no place for reflection and there's no place for punishment. It's just, it is what it is. Then we all die. It's really dark. It is a really dark thing to, to come yeah. to a conclusion. of. I, I hate to uh, keep harping on this fucking point. I'm sorry, but uh, well then I'll give him justice. I'll stop watching his fucking movies <laughs> <laughs> i will stop uh, i'll stop supporting this son of a bitch honestly i think that's what he wants go. though i think that's what he wants though he's like why are you watching when people walk away he's like ah more people should have walked away like, he's like yeah, why right. are you watching this get out of here what is wrong with you <laughs> It's odd to think that it's cathartic for a director to really revel in the idea that people left his film. You know, I find that very, I find that very interesting. Um, he has a way of making things very explicit that I think other directors and other writers try to weave as part of their craft and in, into their film and make you think certain things. So like we've talked about how he's put scenes from his own films into sections where Jack is talking about iconography and great works of art. I laughed my fucking ass off the first time when I watched that. I'd heard that that happened and he had scenes from Dogville and Melancholia and Antichrist, right? And I, um, and then it kind of dawned on me. I had this sort of more, not moral dilemma, but I had this kind of, 
dilemma in how I look at this, because on the one hand, it was in the section of things I disliked in my notes, and then I looked and it was also in the section of things I liked. And so I said, okay, well, what's the matter with me? Did I, what am I? So on the one end, it's like, it's, it's actually very Nietzschean in a lot of ways. I hate to always bring certain things back to Nietzsche, but there, I remember reading Nietzsche back in my days where I just, I went ham and I was also deconverting Shera and Nietzsche served as a bridge to take me out of it. But I remember getting to one of his books and there's a chapter, um, it's like why I am so why I am so wise. That's that's the title of the fucking chapter, and you know at a certain point you get this idea right that 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 Nietzsche is like I'm just going to make explicit what other philosophers try to make you think by being well spoken and narrative and explaining things properly. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna come straight out and say it because I think that's the way it should be, and I get that sense in von Trier. I get that sense that he, I have these eyes. I'm building. This is my my iconography. These are these great works of art. At the same time, it's so thick and so egotistical at times that it it it's it's so unusual rather that it's hard for me to take the film as seriously as he wants. But I also value it. So I found myself having that struggle while watching this movie. I've seen it twice, and it, the struggle was even more indwelled the second time I watched it because it was like I respected the game to do something like that. I respected the for, the forthrightness. Um, to come out and just look at one's works that way. But then now with our talk about Jack and the morals of this film, it makes me think maybe it's unethical for me to dig the fact that the director's being so conceited about his works given some of the things we're talking about. So yeah, I don't know what to make of this. I, I, I really bugged me, this this whole thing. I'm still chewing on it. Um, Dude, anyway. I, I, re I really think that's the point, man. Like yeah. you feel confused and I totally think that was the whole fucking point. Like it gets under your skin and confuses the shit out of you. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to Von Trier. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's novel, right? I mean, that's let's let's take a meta step back and and ask like what, like let's frame that the fact that 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 this is a film like that. Um, I think that goes back to sort of like above and beyond the morality of it, talking about the fact that that kind of film is novel, a novel that produces these sorts of odd sets of emotions together. At least for me, it did. It may not have for you. That's novel to me to be conflicted like this. Don't think I was conflicted this much, anywhere near this much in Antichrist. I was just more disgusted <laughs> in Antichrist. Um, but yeah, I, you know, um, I don't know. There's a, there's, and this goes back. I mean, everything we talk about is going to go back into the narrative of the story. Like the way we look at Von Trier's film is in many ways parallel to the way we talk about Jack's murders and work in. Uh, in the film, it's like, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I, but one of the things that, that's worth exploring here is like the, the, the idea is Jack's fixation on the negative. You ever notice in this movie, like when he's doing art, uh, when he's doing photos, he has a fixation on the negatives and likes to, those are the things that are the most interesting to him. And there's a point in the movie where he says something like he likes the negative because of the inner, uh, de inner demonic quality of the light, something like that. And that to me, I want to take back to my response to Jim's point about the morality of it. That to me is why I actually think I'm starting to really like Von Trier's films because it is a, it, the films I've seen so far are very, um, they're, they're very direct. They push the envelope and they speak outside a sense, my own sense of morality. They challenge me outside of paradigms of morality. Like 
it's worth the exploration of these very visceral outside of the norm sorts of films precisely because that's what art should be right like i have this normative concept of aesthetics and art that and comedy right i'm i'm a big proponent of the fact that like these fucking sjw's who go up to comedians and say you shouldn't make fun of veterans i hate that i mean it's to me it, this is a vehicle of exploration into places that might be very uncomfortable, but the worth of that uncomfortability is something I value maybe more than my own morals, which is, I don't know if that says anything negative about me. Anyway, I hope that made sense. Sorry for the the, the rant. But Von Trier is such a conflicting director because it, it really messes with my head about how I look at these these various things. And this film maybe none more than, than it, this film more than any that he's done. So anyway, anyway. I mean, I think that brings us to the discussion of how art and aesthetics are presented in this film. Uh, this film is presented like the many of the monologues about art and aesthetics, some of which I wasn't, it was kind of going too fast for me. And I was like, okay, I get that. And that connects to that idea and blah, 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 blah. But uh, what I was able to, to glean from it was that uh, art is able to, um, find beauty in the macabre uh, and, and many of the paintings that were shown and even divine comedy in and of itself, that's a beautifully written uh, and he's clearly aping divine comedy and Gotthus Faust and uh, Faust rather. Um, he's, he's clearly aping these, these works of art. He's doing so because for him, it seems it seems to me, because for him, these are able to find beauty in the macabre. Uh, these are able to present um, dark and and disturbing imagery in ways that are both um, uh, sickening and beautiful at the same time. And I think that for, von Trier that's kind of a a reflection on his own corpus that he's able to look at these awful uh these awful nihilistic aspects of humanity and still be able to produce beautiful works of art out of it um and so it seems to me that the uh uh the for von Trier the the mission of art is to find uh, that which is gross and make it beautiful. Um, does that make sense? Is that, or is, and is that the conception of art that you guys got from this film as well? I think there was conflicting uh, storylines between Jack and Virgil's view of that, right? So Jack was trying to convince Virgil that uh, that all these like really dark, horrible things are where art and beauty come from. And Virgil's like, no, you need love to make this a thing. And right, right, so right. I think that was actually... I think it was Lars arguing with himself. I have to be honest. I think he was arguing with himself and had kind of both conflicting views in his mind and was showing that argument through like what his work, what his art has become. Like, is it about the macabre? Is it about love? Can you even have love with that much darkness? Like look at Antichrist. That is a dark ass film. Is there any love in that? And can there be any beauty in that art if there isn't? Um, I think it's a conflict he's had with himself and his own art, and he decides to make Virgil argue with the serial killer to to personify this this inner conflict, and it's it's really kind of intriguing. 
That's uh, that's actually the same. I real quick, Ben. Uh, that's the same type of argument that Virgil makes in uh, uh, Divine Comedy, and I think Nymphomaniac also informs that as well because that's a film that's explicitly about sex and quote unquote the impossibility of love. But I, I go ahead, Ben. I interrupted you. No, that's totally fine. That's actually that's a really excellent call out. So thank you for that. Um, this uh, reminds me of an article that I sort of dug up before uh, this discussion, kind of like thinking about this artistic piece. And um, the article itself is called, For Art to be Art, It Has to be... Oh, let me get this right. For Art to be Art, It Has to be Strange and Disturbing. And I think this definitely argues on the case of, of the perspective that Jack has in this film. And let me just like uh, read one paragraph from this in summary that I think is really, really informative of this topic. Uh, from the article, it says, art is not about aesthetics. It is about the strange and the disturbing presented theatrically as an imaginary theatrical world you are being invited to explore. There are one or more of any number of very diverse presentational media, paintings, music, opera, ballet, video performance, sound, mime, whatever. Art is meant to beguile and to fascinate, but it has to be of a certain order, fascination and beguilement, the disturbing, the unsettling. Ordinary theatrical fascination is just plain fascination unsettling fast or unsettling theatrical fascination is art <clears throat> and in other places in the article it goes on to compare aesthetic to art by saying that if it's if it's just an aesthetic piece what you really have is no different than um than a beautiful sort of craft and, and you might actually think about think about that tied back into his discussions about architecture so like throughout the entire film he's trying to build this house and in the beginning he talks about beautiful cathedrals that are built in a certain way and scientifically that make sense because you're allowed to you know you can you can make it within certain shapes that allow you to to use less material and like so on and so forth it looks it's beautiful when when you look at it but throughout the film he seems to have a frustration with that and that never really seems to satisfy his desire so like within him he talks about that that pain that you know he goes from from light post to light post and as he moves forward the pain within him grows and grows and grows until he's able to do what in his mind is exercise his own art well you know i mean if if beautiful craft isn't really cutting it for him that might be the distinction there is that what he considers art is definitely diving into the strange and disturbing which is where you have that presentation of the macabre so the counter to your strange and disturbing motif bob ross qed QED. No, I, yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. So I want to tie what Jim and I think Ben have said kind of together with the way I look at this, because I think it's kind of both of you guys' perspective combined. So I saw, instead of like the macabre and all, like the way I looked at it was the motif for, I'm stuck on that word tonight for some reason, so just bear with me. The motif of uh, a Jack is destruction. It's, it's iconography through destruction so we think of art as acts of creation we create this thing we build this thing from material and here's what we have but really what jack is doing is destroying and maybe that's that's sort of what von trier sees he's doing with his films think of all of the controversy that has surrounded many of his films um you know he was banned from one of the major film festivals he said i mean he's made mistakes that have cost him things Con and it's con film festival oh, so but he 
he has in in essence you know tried to build this thing but it's ended in a, a kind of failure like i think we would consider ever getting to von Trier's level a monumental success but i think in his mind right because that's how we want to look at this there's a sense of failure in that there's a destruction and there's conversations in this film about destruction and recreation. I'm thinking of the scenes where they talk about the arches and how those were reused. And so there's, I, I wanna, rem, I don't want to have, we shouldn't have the conversation about aesthetics without the idea of destruction, of destroying. Because I think that's, um, I think both Jack and Von Trier are artists of destruction. And I think what they aim to create at the end is sans morality, it's iconography. This is why you see photos of Hitler and Stalin and Mao, because regardless of the morality involved with all of the historical representation of these figures, they're icons, right? And that's what can be produced at the end of an artistic endeavor where destruction is the vehicle. Maybe that's maybe that's somewhere in there, right? I, I look at Jack as someone who destroys, not someone who creates, but that doesn't mean it's not art. It's art through destruction to a certain extent. And I think that does feed into, again, Von Trier's thinking about his own work and maybe his dissatisfaction with it to a large extent, the fact that he's burned bridges, destroyed connections with people, relationships. I mean, I think these things are connected sort of symbolically uh, through through what Jack does and how they represent to maybe his creation of his own works, of his own films. I don't know. There's, I, I feel like there's something in there like that. So not necessarily no, they, the macabre, that, but the destruction. They're definitely I think that is. makes a lot of sense. Did you have a, did you want to go, John? No, 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 no. I, I think I was just sort of like and retweeting what, uh, what said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, there, there absolutely is. And this, um, this is the part of the film that I have been most afraid to talk about, honestly. Um, in fact, <laughs> I can't believe that all of the reviews that I've read and the reasons that people talk about like why they walked out of the film, it has nothing to do with this. And I can't fucking believe it because like they're they're stuck on the the literal violent acts in the film. But this I think is it's probably the the most messed up part. Um, and you might know what I'm talking about. But when you whenever you talk about destruction, there's this this part about two thirds of the way through I think where he discusses ice wine. And, you know, you're talking about leaving the grapes on the vine so that they can rot away essentially to a certain extent that heightens the, the value of the grape and makes it taste better. I wonder if you make wine out of it. And that's a really interesting idea. And he calls it the noble rot. So then that goes into the discussion about architecture and about building buildings with stronger material and weaker material so that they'll purposely in a thousand years time break away to leave behind beautiful ruins, which gets into the part about Nazism and Albert Scheer who apparently was Hitler's chief architect. Um, and Verge at that point, I think rightly says, well, luckily, you know, in short order, all of his shit was torn down and destroyed because that's not an icon we want to, to persist in the world. Absolutely, it's this horrible thing. But during that conversation, you have this montage of the, the atrocities of the Nazis. And it ends with a large number of bodies being pushed into a mass grave, at which point Jack says, the noble rod. And the the stuff that he ties together there is is gut wrenching. You know what I mean? Like I mean, it's it's not the the depictions of the violence itself. We've seen the images before, and clearly it's disturbing and and terrible. And we all know it's it's horrible. But he ties in this this idea of nobility to what's going on there, and how that plays into an icon in such a way that 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 is the piece in the middle of the film that made me feel a little bit sick. You know what I mean? Um, but. Anyway, I just I can't believe like it's it's I really the, the discussion same, about aesthetics and art yeah, that becomes I had the, the crux same of the film. reaction. 
Right. Like I felt sick to my stomach at that point when that was what was being discussed. And not because I felt like he was somehow making Hitler seem great. It was the fact that this sick, twisted individual is actually attaching a term like noble rat to these images that we all are very aware of um, and, and comparing it to a fine wine. Like how sick is this individual? And you can even tell that was when Virgil was done with this fucker. He was like, okay, no. <laughs> and that should be the point where everybody says no. That should be, that should be the walking out point. That is the most disgusting part of the film, honestly. Um, and, and probably purposefully full. So to show how horrible this character is, but um, it, yeah, I had the same exact reaction you had. But let's also kind of bring up, oy vey, uh, let's bring up some of Von Trier's past controversies because in 2001, I pulled up a Hollywood Reporter uh, article because I, I remember hearing something along the lines of Von Trier is a Nazi. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Um, and uh, at a at a conversa at a conversation um, associated with melancholia, this is in 2011. Um, he talks about uh, this is a direct quote from the article, and I'm quoting: um, "For a long time, I thought I was a Jew, and I was happy to be a Jew." He began. Then I met uh, Danish and Jewish directors Susan. Beer, I may be mispronouncing that, and I wasn't so happy, but then I found out I was actually a Nazi. My family were German, and that also gave me some pleasure. What can I say? I understand Hitler. I sympathize with him a bit. Von Trier qualified that, I don't mean I'm in favor of World War II, and I'm not against Jews, not even Suzanne Beer, uh, before digging himself deeper, quotes the article, in fact, I'm very much in favor of them, all Jews. Well, Israel is a pain in the ass, but how can I get out of this sentence? Okay, I'm a Nazi. Um, it is later said in the article that it could be that he was um, joking, but I mean, and and I was trying to look for sort of other mentions of this, and and then Noah started I the think podcast. A, I, th I think there's a video of it. If that's the one yeah, I'm thinking of, it's Kirsten Dunst is in it, and Kirsten Dunst is saying she puts his hand on him, like shut the fuck up, like don't say. Right. Anything. So she says Charlie, something like stop, stop or something. I remember watching this. Charlotte Gainsbourg does the same thing as he's sort of flanked by Kirsten Dunst and, and Charlotte Gainsbourg who are both looking at him like, what the fuck are you saying? It's cringy. And who does that remind you of in the, in the film? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem is that here we like, it. fuck, I'm going to keep going back to this. Like the idea, it makes me even it makes me feel even weirder about participating in this as a as a spectator because we've got von trier you know not only within outside the film uh talking about nazis in not a not in the demonizing sense that that all four of us would talk about nazis but also comparing the final solution, quote unquote, which he says later, yes, we Nazis like to do things on a big scale. Maybe I could do the final solution as a film. Um, final solution is in italics in the article. Uh, that, like that, 
it, it, I share your, I share your revulsion at that moment and connecting it to Von Trier's, uh, Von Trier's stated, uh, politics and stated point of view um it's it's a little cringy that but said how, he, how, he yeah. also re real quick he also said that uh house that jack built was a reaction to the trump regime and uh his objections to the trump regime so there's that too that just sort of throw into the confusing mix of this go ahead Noah. i was just gonna say i we have to we have to talk about the fact that he's to a large extent a troll like he's a provocateur. I, I think that some of this is purposeful to be a provocateur. I, I think that uh, this is one of the biggest um, issues. Uh, one of the, the film you probably know who this is. Uh, we all know who this is. Mark Kermode, who did a, a quite a few pieces, saying that this is how you have to go into every Von Trier film at this point. That he trolls as a provocateur to get people hyped, interested to a certain extent to go have that. Oh no. Uh, uh, pit in their stomach sort of feeling where I, I'm nervous about watching this. He said some things that make me feel uncomfortable. I've heard there's misogyny in this movie and ultra violence and this connects to what he said here. I, I think that he's he's to a large extent being provocative and and I think trolly. I, I think just because he does this so much, tack on to the fact that he has crippling anxiety. I believe he rarely leaves his house when he's not making movies. He has a very fractured social life from all the interviews that I've seen with him. I, I think this is a person who's probably not entirely well. Um, I, that's just my view from from the interviews I've seen with him. I, so I think some of this kind of connects. It's not an excuse. It, it's certainly no reason to um, not take seriously. It's it's no reason to um, to not feel uncomfortable. Of, of course, the things that he's saying are uncomfortable, but I wonder how much of that is simply to be a provocateur and nothing more. Yeah, I, and I, I think you might be right. Uh, we'll go back to this, one of the things I said earlier about the film. That's not an exonerating fact. Uh, as much as that, I think you're right, I also think that that's not an exonerating fact to go sort of talk about how you're a Nazi. Um, but I, I don't know. It's uh, it, it's, it's certainly insensitive, right? It, it's a yeah. tough subject to talk about because it I feel is. like we're talking more about Von Trier than we're talking about the film. Yet I also think that the film is so interwoven with Von Trier that this is our what tour theory on fucking steroids. <laughs> um, so I, it's, it's hard to have a conversation with, about this yeah. without, you know, jumping into this shit. I, I think that's the point, right? This is the, this is the novelty of this film to me is that it's so inexorably linked to Von Trier that it, we can't really not do this conversation well without talking Von Trier to the depth and to the degree that we're doing it. I think we're actually not doing a disservice to his his piece of art. I think we're I think we're I think this is what he would I would like to think that this is what he would want. But then again, that may just be my ego because I think everything I do is fucking bomb. So I don't know. And then are I we feeding into his ego and then yeah. creating a monster? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> but I mean, then this goes into the whole thing like uh, that we were talking about earlier, where you know, the macabre art, like that's where the strangeness and, and beauty and art is, is, is from like the darkness and all that. Like, that's literally what the show is. That's literally what we do. We sit, it's called deadly analysis. We uh, sit around and, and analyze, analyze the scary shit. <laughs> Dark we dissect stuff. them. We dissect them in all the ways possible. And so yeah. we are one of those. Well, I think that, 
I think that what we should do is we should start a, a petition or maybe even a GoFundMe. And it is condemning Von Trier to make a rom-com, not a deconstructionist rom-com. You're not making like melancholy or fucking uh, nymphomate. No, you're making win a date with da Tad Hamilton too. And you have to cast the original people, including Topher Grace, not Black Klansman Topher Grace, mid-90s Topher, like that 70s show Topher Grace. That is the and most horrific sounding movie I've ever heard of. Nobody wants to watch that. That'll be the scariest movie ever made. No one will be able to leave alive. Au contraire, I think it would be hell for him, which is exactly <laughs> what I want to condemn him to. I, 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 let's do it. Hashtag win a date Von uh, win a date with Von Trier, uh, whatever. I, I don't know. I got to come up with a better hashtag. I'm not good at hashtags. But uh, we got to start this thing and uh, condemn him to making a simplistic studio rom-com with studio notes. Uh, and then that way, that way we'll sort of get, uh, we'll get him back for all this. Hit the bars with Lars, something like that. Uh, so <laughs> like I, they, we, for all the shit that we're talking about in terms of the visceral, the macabre and the uncomfortability, I, maybe I'll turn this around and say, there was something Jack said that I thought was right. Maybe we'll throw it that way. Um, there's a particular, again, very, there's, there's some Nietzsche in this. I'm sorry. I know I throw that shit in here, but there, there's a, there's some heavy undertones in this, a particularly where, and this is a fairly common trope where Jack is talking to Verge about the tiger and the lamb, right? And their natures. Um, and there's a sense in which I don't want to trail too far off into this, but there's a, a sort of, we're victims to our natures. We're blindly following our natures. The lamb follows its nature, the tiger follows its nature. And then I think Virgil says something at some point, something about something religious. I forget entirely, but something about religion's role. And uh, and Jack chastises him and says essentially that, that you're a part of a system where people deny their nature, that it's, it's not good that there's religion because it makes people deny their nature. And I want to be very careful how I qualify this, and I'm opening up the floodgates to an entire discussion of religion and morality. But what the fuck? Thanks, Lars. Um, so uh, yeah, I you know he he says something to that effect. I mean, this echoes. So it, it, you know, the, the tiger and the lamb is a fairly common trope. The first season of Fargo. I don't know if you guys have seen the first season of Fargo, the show. Um, uh, the bad guy, Lauren Malvo, says something very similar. He talks about wolves. This big motif in the in the first season is wolves and their nature, and how Rome, you know, was uh, built uh, by a, a person raised by wolves. There's there's a lot of that in here about predatory, the predatory nature of particular people, um, and and uh, this is definitely in this movie. However, to tie it back into the religious component, there's um, there's a, a, a section of text that Nietzsche has called the three metamorphoses. Um, where instead of kind of a, uh, instead of the distinction between a tiger and a lamb, Nietzsche uses the idea of a, uh, a camel being a first stage of a kind of development. And I'll kind of explain what that is here in a second. Um, the camel, the second stage is the lion. And then the third stage, oddly enough, is a baby. It's a child. So it's a camel, a lion, and a child. In terms of the evolution of one's nature into it, Nietzsche would describe as an ubermensch or the overman, right? And, um, Part of that metamorphosis is the destruction of values, is the destruction of societies and values that impinge upon your nature, the things that stop you from being fully authentic in who you are. And 
Jack says something very similar to Verge. In he says something very similar to what Nietzsche would say in the Three Metamorphoses that he chastises Verge, Verge's religious perspective and apparatus precisely because it's self-denying to a large extent. And um, it was really fast. This little piece in their dialogue. This is one of the maybe maybe this will get into one of the things I didn't like about the movie is how fast these the profundity of certain things are said. There's so much dialogue and dialectic between Verge and Jack that some things you kind of have to look at what? You have to kind of rewind and, and catch that. Um, and this was one of those for me. And so, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily want to open a giant religious debate, even though I'm kind of doing that. But I, that was something Jack said, a serial killer said, that I thought was in the right vein of things. And that I want to take back to my original defense of sort of looking at this as amoralitis as as outside of morality as possible and saying that it sometimes you know the removal of one's own ethical norms can inform uh and, and provide insights watching a piece something like this can provide insights and this is this is something that that happened to me so like i watched a movie where i agreed with something a very terrible serial killer was saying and i i don't think that says anything in particularly insane about me i think that what it shows is that every once in a while you should listen to the madman. Every once in a while, the person craw crawled up into a corner, bundled over, rocking back and forth in an insane asylum says something you ought to listen to. I'm a fan of kind of the reversal of perspective every once in a while. And I think this uh, did that, at least for me. It was a state in which a serial killer who is an antagonist to, lar to a large degree, who you're not supposed to have any empathy with, says something that I was largely in agreement with. And I thought, that produced an interesting feeling in me to think about it that way. And I valued that portion of this film for doing that. I thought what did you think about Virgil's response though, in, in response to him when he was discussing that the lamb is innocence and um, yeah. the fact that what he's doing, he's using this story to justify destroying innocence and people that trust and people that are beautiful. Um, yeah. Like that's it. Like, how can you not see that as, as just pure evil? <laughs> like, how can you not see that? Um, I, I think it's an interesting argument, but I do yeah. know where Jack might go, but I'd like to know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we want to separate the distinction of how one uses an interesting uh, divergence into a moral discussion like this versus... So I would say that that's something maybe a little different than actually what I'm talking about, I guess. It's certainly connected, and I think what Verge says makes sense. I, I agree with Verge uh, to a large extent. I guess all I'm really saying is that um, is that the particular piece about the, the religious denial of the self is the thing that I found true. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that one ought to prop up oneself. I mean, I, I, I think the idea of the overman is insane to a large extent. I think it's, we follow Jack's, uh, the 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 idea of the 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 uh, the lamb and the uh, the tiger. There's so many animals going on. Felix fucking zoo between each and him. Um, if we uh, if we look at that um, and follow that to its end, I don't think I I don't think I I don't think I track all the way to the very end of that road. I think there's particular things that he said that I agree with, but I think his usage of what follows from that, like the destruction of innocence. I'm not on board with it. I, I don't think getting there is necessary. I actually don't think it's, in fact, even a consequence of adopting that kind of reversal of value, like that reversal of um, perspective. I don't think it lends itself necessarily to the idea of slaughtering lambs. 
I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I, I think that that's what Jack chooses to do. <laughs> I think that's one possibility, but I don't think it's the only possibility. It's presented as the only possibility through Verge's response, but I don't think that's the only one. I think you can have a system where like the Greeks, for example, let's I, Nietzsche does this too in his books. And I, I think I'm gonna keep pulling this back because I think there's a lot of this in this movie where, so the, the Greeks had this idea, like when you ask, so if you ask a Christian what's good, they're gonna say something tied to like virtue. They're gonna say, it's good to not get drunk. Um, it's good to respect the Sabbath or it's good to um, you know, respect the rights of people around you, things like, like a million different things, right? That's what being good is to a person under a particular kind of religious apparatus, the sort that Jack is critiquing with Verge. But the Greeks would say something like a good person is a well-rounded person who can throw a javel really far, who can argue his point really well, who's well-read, um, who's physically capable. Um, a good person to the Greeks was someone who was able to exercise their nature to varying degree, to, to, with, with a sense of plasticity. It was someone who was well-rounded, right? Um, that to me is somewhat more, I don't want to get too esoteric, but that's more to what Jack is saying than it is to what Verge is saying. I'd want to make that distinction. So I don't think anything negative necessarily follows from that, nor from Jack's perspective, uh, from from this idea of um, getting on Verge for the denial of, of accepting one's nature, because it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that one's nature is infinite murder, right? Maybe it is. We should discuss about what happens when it is, but it's not necessary. So I don't, does that make sense? I, 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 I I'm with Verge's answer, but I don't think it's the only answer out there. Well, I I mean, I see this as sort of a Kierkegaardian argument in some ways. I mean, Jack is is uh, fashioning himself as sort of a uh, a a a post-Christian Ubermensch, and Virgil is fashioning himself as a classical ethicist. And uh, that's kind of a Kierkegaardian dichotomy that I, I, I think he, he talks about um, in, in his uh, essays about existentialism. Now is the time I really wish Garrett were here. I um, <laughs> hey, that's what you get, Garrett, for not watching the film. No. Right. Well, <laughs> I think he might have had this uh, similar objections that I, yeah. that I did. Of course, yeah. I, I, uh, I jumped in. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I, even in this film as a whole, it does follow a kind of Christian um, uh, morality play, doesn't it? I mean, he yeah. starts off as as a sinner, lives a sinful life, and then is sort of justly punished. In kind of this, it, it seemed as though there was a trickery on the on the part of Virgil, where he's like, "Oh yeah, that's where you can get to the other side, and you go up to heaven. Uh, if you have made it, good luck." Have a good day, you know. By Jack, sort of knowing that Jack is going to condemn himself to the the deepest part of hell. It's also interesting that in Dante, uh, Virgil is condemned to hell because he is uh, born pre-Christ and therefore he is not able to be saved. And that's why Virgil is running around in hell. He was a good person. He was great, but he just he was born at the wrong time. And so he it's his job to uh, usher Dante through through hell. So, um, similar, I think, to the way it's being deployed here. 
whereas Virgil is making some of these Christian arguments, even though he himself is not able to be uh, to reap the rewards of of um, uh, the post Christ uh, uh, paradigm, post Christ world. Yeah, if I can, if I can jump in there for a second, I just I, I'm I'm not going to get off on this tangent, but. What you just described inspires a great deal of deep-seated rage, I think, for me, that he was a great person, but he was just born at the wrong time. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> if, well, if we want to go back to the... No, that. no, I know, I know. But I think... Jim's like, yeah, burn in hell, Verge. Burn. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i going to stay away from that for now. Just, just noted. Anyway, going back to the lamb and the tiger a little bit, I want to talk about this, like, this whole morality play here. I don't even think it's necessarily um, divorced entirely from a Christian worldview. And I, I really want to kind of like dive into the poetry here that's actually being cited uh, by William Blake. So um, on one side, you have the lamb. On the other side, you have the tiger. And for the lamb, the way he describes is he is called by that name for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek. He is mild. He became a little child. I, a child and thou a lamb, we are called by his name. So clearly there's, um, there's uh, some very some deeply Christian sort of like symbolism going on here and some sentiments. And I think that's portrayed in a very positive way. But on the other side, he has tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest of the night. What a mortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. And of course, at the end of the poem, he sort of twists that a little bit. What a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. But the key there, I think, is the symmetry. Um, and I think in, in sort of like Jack's perspective here, like if you if you do divorce this a little bit and we're talking about how maybe a religious perspective might cause a person to deny their nature and pull them more towards being like a lamb, even if they're more like a tiger. Um, but it also kind of makes the argument that both the lamb and the tiger were sort of made by the same hand, I think. And that's sort of like the, the key there when we're talking about their symmetrical relationship. And I think Jack, the way he describes this, of course, is, you know, the lamb, the benefit of being the lamb, even though they weren't asking for their fate, they have the benefit of being immortalized. And I think that goes back to like the, the Christ imagery, of course, he was sacrificed um, and then rose from the dead. And we still remember him 2000 years plus um, after the fact. Right. So that's the benefit. Um, but on the other side, of course, there you have the tiger whose um, drive, I guess it is, to use that material the way he would call it um, in the way that the material is asking to be used and and take that to its 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 most horrible end. Obviously, in his interpretation, that means um, using them quite literally as a material for his art. But I don't think it necessarily has to be taken like that. And I think that's Verge's point when he talks about how he reads Blake like the devil reads the Bible, you know? I mean, like, I, I think that was a really apropos sort of line. And it was really telling that, yes, I mean, there is this relationship here. There's this symmetry, but it doesn't have to be taken to this extent. Maybe it's true that religious frameworks do cause you to deny your inner nature or like what's really underlying all of these culturally forced mores and values and morality. Um, maybe that is the case, but I, I, yeah, the interpretation there and the end point, I think, is really kind of what becomes very twisted and dark. Uh, specifically when we're talking about Jack. Yeah, the, the, what, I'll, what I'll give here, right, even if, with the divergence of some of our perspectives, we're all sort of in the same, I feel like we're all kind of dancing around the same thing. And one of the things I respect about this film is that it raises, like Von Trier, if anything, is really good at raising 
like inhumane and the profane to an appropriate level of discussion. I mean, obviously we've had to navigate here. We've been like, I'm not gonna go down that road. Got some Hitler stuff over here. We're gonna, we're gonna be careful how we navigate. But I think what he does so well, right, is he's, I mean, here we are talking about some of the most fucking profane things imaginable. And to the extent to which they're interesting conceptions about what it means to be human, what it means to be a particular kind of human, right? like a serial killer. But I think in, to a certain extent, how, how that feeds into like what it may, fuck, I'll just say it, maybe what it means to be a human, like what it means to to do good art, what it means to be an artist, what it means to build and destroy. Um, that's one thing I got to give to him. And it's, I think it's coming more becoming more clear to me at the, it, as we, we complete these discussions, like um, that is what I think he does really well. And I'm going to give Garrett a lot of shit for not being a part of that, for, for deciding to opt out. Because I think that's worth, I think, I think this is the worth of dancing over one's morality for a mere two hours to or in this case two and a half hours thanks thanks lars to to watch a movie so uh, anyway i just wanted to throw that out there i was no as you were talking i'm noticing like this is one of the really unique things that von trier does really well is the ability to throw out some of the most profane shit i mean there are scenes in antichrist that just haven't left me but they were they were philosophical in nature too to the extent that it was worth our time. And I, I think that he's the master of that. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. It impinged itself upon me as you were talking, Ben. I, I just want to point out there has been a similar conversation we've already had when we talked of Donnie Darko and we talked of Graham Greene's The Destructors. Um, and we discussed, um, you know, where you're creating something from destruction. So we have kind of gone into this philosophical uh, discussion, but what was very interesting about that is we had the the Messiah thing going on, right, with Donnie, um, where he's kind of like a Jesus figure, um, where he sacrifices himself, and this is also something that I think Lars goes into a lot is the is the iconography in Christianity that's surrounded by that destruction of of a perfect being, someone who did no wrong, was was beautiful and wonderful, and what do we do? We 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 plaster all over our homes, all over our churches, all over our necks dangling as uh, this perfect being being slaughtered to death uh, as, as a form of iconography to, to represent something that matters to us. And he actually perfectly put that forth in this film when he was showing the different um, pieces of art that, that show when you go hunting and you murder all these animals and then you put them in this like beautiful positions all over as a form of art uh, with dead bodies. Uh, this is something that, that religious people have done. Um, it, even when they were killing witches in Salem, they, they, it was like a display of, of death and destruction uh, as a, as a form of like storytelling, like, okay, the moral of the story kids is don't be a witch, you know? And, and this is, this is how they try to, um, try to get us to stay in place and and yes as a society we should have some rules and structure and 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 some ideas of how we should all function together because we all do we're all interconnected but do we use iconography of death and and violence to try to get people to be moral and i mean that's what horror movies are in a lot of ways right don't be the monster uh this kind of stuff is bad um is that okay and and to what we were, what we were discussing earlier on was you know is is it okay is this is this ethical to put this form of art out there to try to tell tell people to be moral tell people to be ethical that is a really good question yeah there's <laughs> there's no greater film 
to me that personifies that that we've discussed in The Exorcist, right? One of the things we talked about is how many people went back to church after The Exorcist is kind of a, a way of, anyway, I don't want to get back into that, but that, that struck me as one of the things that um, is a good example of that. Um, yeah, um, shit, you, I was going to say something, now I forgot it. Anyway, um, I, I got a question for you guys. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. If you let me. Yeah, I was I, gonna. I was gonna switch subjects to talk uh, about a, another thing. But if you have a question, you want to. Yeah. Go ahead. Let me throw this. My last question out there. I'll throw it over to all of you. It's pretty simple. What do you guys think the locked room in the freezer was about? What do you think that represented? It was a place that he couldn't get to throughout the entire movie, but he gets there in the end, right? There's something obviously symbolic about this. What is it? I think that's the gateway to hell. Uh, literally within the context of the film, within the action and yeah. the the world of the film, that's the that's the gateway to hell. Um, I also think that that might be a sort of artistic in in the interpretation of this. Uh, when we're going on the vein of this is uh, this whole film is a metaphor for von Trier's own art. It's sort of an artistic breakthrough. Like he is not able to construct a house yeah. in the world. He is only able to construct a house in this gateway to hell out of the dead bodies that he has accumulated from going out into the world and failing. Uh, so in that sense, it's both an artistic breakthrough and literally within the, the mythology of the film, a, uh, a, a gateway to hell. I don't know. That's the way I took it. Uh, what about uh, the rest of us? Yeah, what I thought was kind of weird about that is that at the very beginning of the movie, he says specifically to Verge that he never was able to open that door. And that makes me a little bit suspicious of, suspicious of it, uh, just in general, um, as maybe a literal event that happened. I mean, like right before that, you have the police sort of converging around his his little freezer compound, and they're shooting inside of the door. Um and I'm kind of wondering if that that whole sequence there was intended to be taken as something that happens after he dies. Um, maybe and I do. I do agree with the interpretation there that you're talking about, about an artistic breakthrough, right? Like it, it very obviously seems to me that 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 hidden thing from him that he was never able to achieve that that lasting icon, that work of art, that masterwork that he just couldn't get to, that he was constantly frustrated with the failure of never being able to build this thing that he had built up in his mind that sort of equals his own self-perceived grandeur. Um, but I do kind of wonder if it is intended to be sort of like a, a life to death sort of gateway. Um, I mean, like obviously in, um, in the divine comedy, you have that point where of course um, the main character, it's, it's not ver uh, Dante is, is kind of like lost in the forest. Um, and eventually he does stumble upon Virgil, who is able to take him through the gateway to hell to be able to get back up to where he was trying to get to in the first place. And then, of course, at the end of the movie, we see that for him, after he walks through the gateway, that journey is not able to be completed and he just falls deeper into hell. Um, but yeah, any, anyway, to, to summarize all that, in addition to being sort of like that, that symbolism of a, a, an artistic breakthrough, I also see it as the the distinction between passing from life to death and, and potentially in sort of a way. Shayra, with your perspective of how hard you are on Jack, do you see it the same way? Because I feel like your bend is like, this is a frail, you know, kind of a, a sad man who this is how he has to act out his I'll say insecurities, but his issues, right? So do you see the finality of his work in that light too or not? 
I don't think he actually opened the door or built that house of corpses. I think that was all a delusion that he had as he was dying because we have this magical ability as humans to uh, hallucinate a bit when we die. I think that the cops got him. He never got to open the door. He never built his house. He was a loser to the end. And he had to fabricate some kind of weird, stupid idea that he'd actually accomplished some goals before he passed on with Virgil into uh, what was hell. Um, I, I think that the door symbolized what he thought was supposed to be justice and justice would be that he gets caught and that he gets he gets killed probably or or taken to prison or, or some kind of justice was done and it was never it never happened but you know he finally gets caught by the cops so now the door can magically open and he can build his house finally and everything's like fine whatever <laughs> but I think they yeah. killed him and yeah. I think he slowly died, bled out, and get, got some special uh, hallucinatory juices going through his brain near the end. And I think that's why we got that, like, Monty Python weird animation stuff happening, and then some weird, like, action cam <laughs> stuff going through the sewers. And it was just like, he was tripping balls, I think, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that's precisely what I thought you would say. And I, that's, a very, that's, a, that's a very interesting perspective. Um, the camera work actually does kind of go in your favor. I didn't really think about that because there are those like super fucking slow mo, like one frame per second shots, and then like handheld, which yeah, I guess could in some sense be interpreted as having, you know, the hallucinatory aspects of one's last moments. That's that's really interesting. I, this is why I love you guys because I read like reviews where everyone and their mom was saying this this room represented something like empathy for Jack, like the ability to empathize and to get that one thing he couldn't get as a serial killer. And I'm like, these are the same motherfuckers who probably thought It Follows was all about AIDS or something, you know? So I, I, it's, I totally am with you guys. I sort of share the, the, the perspective of, um, of uh, Ben and Jim in the sense that it's a kind of, to me, it was a kind of aesthetic catharsis it was a kind of finality it was uh, it was unlocking what one saw whether it was truly a sense whether it was truly an icon or not one's own sense of icon one's own finality of creation the, the house that jack built quite literally right um so it was unlocking that last thing um and then interesting enough verge walks into it and kind of says well wow, it's an interesting house you built or something like like i think he's even more positive than that only a narcissist would make virgil say that yeah right he's somewhat complimentary <laughs> in that scene which i thought was interesting yeah um i don't anyway. think he built a house so you, <laughs> I know. Yeah, so you, he died before i read online that that's, that's one of the interpretations too that, that he um that he, he obviously passed away at some point in the freezer before any of this which makes sense we don't see him die so that obviously means he he did die at some point that we don't see right but yeah anyway that was interesting to explore maybe what that meant um good jim did you want to you had something else you had another rabbit hole here let's, let's yeah, yeah, yeah real brief uh well first of all um like virgil is actually really complimentary of dante in divine comedy so it kind of makes sense that he's really contra uh complimentary of von trier in von ah. film uh he's, at, there's one part at the beginning of inferno where uh I think he elects Dante to like the top four poets of all time or some bullshit like that. Like there's, I, I, I'm, I'm forgetting it, uh, forgetting it specifically, but Virgil says, look, I am one of the greatest poets. You are one of the greatest poets. This uh, other guy's one of the, Homer is one of the other great poets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's, there's this, it, it, it's fitting with Virgil's character to, uh, 
compliment Von Trier in Von Trier's film. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about specifically uh, with uh, uh, possibly with you, Ben, I, I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, but the depiction of psychopathy in this film, it seemed to me that it was um, that, that there were some inconsistencies in the depiction of psychopathy. And I basically want to know what you think kind of psychiatrically, medically about um, how psychopathy was depicted, whether you think it was an accurate portrayal, um, on and on and on. I want to hear your thoughts before I give my own, um, because, yeah, so what did, what did you think? For those that don't know, Ben has, was it two PhDs, Ben? You're a medical doctor. What, it, yeah, you have something like that, right? Yeah, yeah it's a medical doctor, a psychologist, a statistician, and engineer, <laughs> surprisingly enough. No, you do have some training in psychology. I'm giving him shit because like in like five other podcasts, he's so overly like he does not like to like overindulge his qualifications. He's like, I am we did this in creep and it cracked me up. He was like, I am by no means a professional psychologist. I'm like, Ben, just give your opinion. You're a smart guy. We're just gonna say you're Mr. PhD from now on and that you have a you, you, this is your field, so go for it. Well, uh, it, masters in experimental, not, not clinical. Um, so I'm not super as, as well-versed in the DSM as others might be. What I do know is that psychopathy isn't like an official diagnosis, right? So like when you talk about it, it's a little bit fuzzy around the edges anyway. There's a lot of conjecture and a lot of people like to study people in prison that they think sort of fit their description of what psychopaths are supposed to be and sort of because of that, it becomes kind of like a, a, a sampling of convenience issue where you sort of have people with their expectations kind of like fulfilling those expectations in a certain way out of just so just to put that out there right so it's a it's a it's a difficult topic um with all that being said i think the way that it's described seems close to what i've heard described in the past right so like you have this person with you know ex extreme narcissism right like a very um stark lack of affect like he even goes into detail about not having the natural reactions to other people that we would expect right like most of us don't have to think about how we react to certain events um around others like we just kind of like have this natural effective reaction and generally speaking it seems to be fairly in line with what other people have and like sort of how they react like you don't you don't have to fake the facial um posturing this of like an emotion the fact that he's practicing all that i think is is quite close to some other descriptions of what psychopaths have done just to like make their ability to manipulate others a little bit stronger because that's that's how you connect empathically is like through those kinds of nonverbal expressions largely um, he also seems to have these um kind of like random outbursts of anger that just don't seem to come from anywhere um, like you, you can kind of see that as an example, whenever he has his house, like the, the version one of his little house model and he just flips out and destroys it for no reason. You know, I think those kinds of like bouts of just random aggression are quite, um, quite telling his relationship with simple, <laughs> the fact, not, not just the fact that he called her simple, but that he gaslighted her back and forth so much, even in just that one scene, right? He comes in, he gives her the positive smile. He has that like funny little conversation with her over the phone. And then directly after that, he goes into treating her like a total piece of garbage. Like that flip right there, I think, is is incredibly indicative of somebody who might have like an antisocial personality disorder type of thing. Um, 
I mean, as much as any director and actor who presumably has normal empathy can portray somebody who is supposed to be a psychopath, I think they did a pretty good job, in, in, in my view, for what it's worth. Would he recognize that he's a horrible person? Like, he says very specifically multiple times, I'm a horrible person, I've done awful things, I'm a bad person. Like, he would, he applies a moral dimension to his actions. Um, yeah, is that good? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think that's fair. Um, because you, you have to understand that I mean, what most people say whenever they they describe a psychopath as not really caring about their diagnosis or not seeking a diagnosis is because one, they don't think they have a problem, but um, two, because of like the lack of empathy and all of that. But I, I think like also when you think about the fact that these people might practice empathy just to manipulate others tells us that they are capable and have the intelligence to learn the rules. And so, I mean, you can, you can talk about what the moral code is. You can talk about what's right and wrong from a normative perspective. You know what the laws are, you know what this group says and that group says, and you can parrot that quite convincingly. And I think that's totally fair. Um, the part that's missing there isn't the, the ability to take the perspective of another person and have that theory of mind. It's the effective component where you don't feel that connection Whereas for a lot of people, it's going to be very natural whenever you you meet somebody, um, you're interacting with them, there's going to be something inside that sort of drives your your interactions as well as your um, your interpretation of morals, I think. Like it, from my perspective and from an empathy-based perspective, I think it's natural to believe that our, our moral compulsion, compulsions from a social perspective come from our shared empathy. Um, but that's really going to be the difference there is like a person like this would be able to learn the rules and be able to use those rules to their advantage. So they don't get caught largely, but they're not going to feel it on the inside. So I, I still think that's a fair, uh, fair depiction. Okay. All right. That makes they sense. They also tackled that in the film. He did talk about how it is, is it isn't necessarily common for people with his condition to be that self-aware, but through certain assessments he had come to that conclusion um, because he is so obsessed with studying things that he learned about himself and I actually have a friend who uh, has been diagnosed and has become self-aware and it is it isn't the most common thing to happen but there was a lot of adjustment that he decided to make once a diagnosis came in and obviously he didn't get diagnosed with psychopathy I don't I don't think that's actually how that works but um, he did have a lot of these tendencies. And so through the awareness and through some discussions, he was able to adjust a lot of his behavior um, and in a way fake that he is going to be good from now on because he is being good. I don't know how to explain that any other way, um, but they just don't have the capability to have that kind of empathy. So they almost have to just actively be empathetic it's not innate it's not in their nature um this guy obviously jack did not choose that path and chose a path of well this is who i am la -di da i'll just learn to smile and then kill people um which is far more disturbing but i did find it interesting i've been seeing like a correlation between a lot of films now i can't remember what the name of the film is and i know we're going to discuss it and noah you you know what it is um it was in a 1980 film that i watched uh, watched recently, but it's basically this idea of someone who's trying to appear to be weak to to go after people. So like in this film, he had like a crutch 
I was pretending to be weak and he's learning to smile and, and, and appear to be someone who's not scary. And in another film, and Noah will know the name of it probably, or he's going to have to research what, the, what it's called again. But uh, the 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 bad guy, he faked a, an arm injury. He was walking around with a sling. It was like, oh, I, I can't, I can't uh, attach my my thing on the back of the car. Blah blah blah. Oh, I need help. Um, Silence of the Lambs. No, it wasn't Silence of the Lambs. Oh, okay. Well, that happened. Although that was also in Silence of the Lambs. Sorry. And, I, and I am seeing like some correlation with this, like this idea that these these people will fake injuries and fake weakness to let someone's guard down um it, it, and they used it in this and i was like that is that is actually what these this is a sport loose the vanishing yes yeah the vanishing sport, sport loose yeah dutch which dutch i hope we will discuss at some point in time that was a very disturbing film to me yeah. but um similar tactic used and then you notice that simple the the uh supposedly dumb girl she was on to him she's like Where, where'd your crutch go how are you able to walk around like what do you what's going on yeah, she, <laughs> like, she, had, she had a moment she had a light bulb moment definitely that she knew something was up with him yeah so it's uh i don't know i i feel like it does ring true but also it would be kind of a rare thing where you you have that kind of self-awareness that you need to adjust some things so someone um, in the comment someone in the comment section said something like ben, ben maybe you can clarify this they said um it would, in regards to these sorts of people that we're talking about i think they know what's right or wrong but they just don't care like they want to do what will serve them is that accurate or not like do do they really know like what's right or wrong I, they just don't I mean, care how, how do you, or... you want to get into an epistemological discussion, <laughs> yeah right, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah to know? how does anyone know what morality is like how do we yeah. share those definitions yeah. with each other when it's you know i mean it's difficult to say right like i i, I yeah. think that's a fair enough description right like and just not to care about it um like, sure. especially if you think about a lot of the people who have these tendencies, they don't end up serial killers. You know, I mean, like you can have some antisocial personality traits and become lawyers, CEOs, people in high power situations who know how politicians, <laughs> who know how to manipulate others for a particular end. And in their minds, it might just not be advantageous to kill somebody because why would you do that? Yeah. It's like an unnecessary risk. Whereas for a, a, a normal, like a, a neurotypical individual, the reason you don't kill somebody is just because you don't want to. And like, if you ever came into that situation, like there would be something inside of you that's like, I really don't, uh, you know, I mean, it yeah. would be self-driven. It's like, you're not doing it because you know the rule. It's sure. you're not doing it because you feel it on the inside that it's wrong. Maybe we could say something like they know what's right or wrong descriptively, but they don't feel the normative obligation to, to to behave in that way for any larger reason other than self-preservation or something you know what i mean like they know descriptively it's a descriptive kind yeah. of morality we live in a society where you don't stab other people in the throat um probably so, more of a calculation than anything right like, yeah I think when you when you get down to morality as being like empathy driven i think that's when things really start to piece together and make sense in a lot of different ways where yeah, I mean, if you, I, I especially don't want to get off on a tangent about like evolutionary psychology, but I mean, like when you, when you study um, non-human psychology, you see this pro-social behavior in other animals and it's largely perceived to be because of something inside of them, allowing them to have some kind of like empathy for the individuals around them, which 
causes them to engage in behaviors that are better and more beneficial for the group rather than just beneficial to the individual. And that's kind of like that, that anchor that empathy gives you. <laughs> it, it puts boundaries around your behavior because you're forced to sort of think about the larger group rather than just yourself. Whereas like with somebody who doesn't have that, they're going to be thinking about just themselves, like, because that's what makes the most sense or like they, they don't feel that connection but they're not also going to just kind of like shoot themselves in the foot by engaging in this crazy violent behavior um, for no reason. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Although some of them, I guess, like in a, in a psychopath, like we might see in, uh, in Jack the house bill like, or the house that Jack built, like for Jack, for instance, he has this compulsion inside of him to do these violent things. And there's also nothing inside of him to stop him from doing that. Like that's really the distinction. Like he has this lack of empathy, but then also this aggressive compulsion and tendency. Like, and it just it's it's sort of like a perfect storm of things going wrong that might cause a person to behave in this way. I want to see the house that Joseph built, like in Creep. Like I want that's what I want to see. I much preferred Joseph to Jack. I, Joseph was a little more likable, but maybe that I, made him more. I deadly. think it would be fun to kind of after um, after we watch American Psycho and talk about American Psycho. I I think it might be interesting to talk about which which of these uh, serial killers was a prop a more proper depiction of psychopathy. Maybe that's a really uh, good discussion. <laughs> Actually, that's I'm gonna I put think that, that was something the... we should do after American yeah. Psycho, though. Um, but yeah, yeah I think I think that'd be fun. PhD between now and then, though. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> can you believe we've been talking about this movie for two hours this is we're two Whoa, hours oh are you yeah. serious yeah, oh God. dude like this is, what, this is what happens when we talk. do you guys have anything else you want to add before we wrap up and score the films or any i'm sure there are a, a billion other things we probably could have said about this movie i think we explored some pretty cool things related to morality philosophy art religion we pretty much danced fairly i think fairly well on on these topics without having two hours on one of those issues so bravo to us for doing something like that see this is what i get for watching this movie now my ego is coming out i'm bravoing myself and you guys uh so uh do you guys have anything else you want to add or you want to wrap up i'm ready to wrap all right so i guess i'll start well yeah i'll start just because it's on my i just i can kind of get it all out here i mean I've, I've said mostly what i think about this movie i'm i'm vexed by it to a large extent um and then i take a step back and realize I'm vexed by it. And I ask myself, is that a positive or a negative? And I think overall, it's a positive thing. Um, a film that can do something like, like, I like movies that make me feel ways I don't normally feel when I watch them, make me think about things that are uncomfortable that I don't like to think about, that shock me and make me feel things differently. Like I, in this movie did that, I, not to the extent I think some of the other films we've been discussing, Antichrist I think had more of a visceral gut reaction to my, to my psyche, but this one kind of vexed me about myself. It made me ask like, am, am I the sort of person who, like anyway, the things we talked about earlier just made me really think about myself. How about this, myself in relation to the movie in a much more, um, in a much more uh, frank way than I ever thought a movie could could do that. And I think this discussion really brought that out. And I value that as a, so that's in the positive bucket. That's in the good bucket. Um, sometimes this movie was so over the top egotistical that it felt less organic than I'd like. Um, I, again, for the reasons I talked about in this movie, liked and kind of disliked the ego. I'm not sure where to stand with that. I think I edged more towards, that's a plus for me, that he was just um, open enough to be like, you know, my films are great works of art. Let's explore some of them. Let's throw them in this movie. I think that's novel. 
at minimum, that's novel, um, and at worst is a sign of huge egotism, which all which then feeds into the interpretation of his connection with Jack. So these are all really cool ways of looking at this movie. They're all sort of interconnected. And that's, uh, I, I don't know how much we can say that about certain films. Like that's a cool, that's a novel thing. And I like that. Um, don't know about setting it in the, was it 60s and 70s? I, not sure how, what that served other than there were no cell phones. So I'm, I didn't really hang on anything culturally to me. Uh, Could have happened at another point in time. Kind of didn't understand that. But I don't know if any of you have anything to say about that. But I, to me, I just, it's kind of like whatever it kind of felt. I, kind of I have something to say about that. Okay. I think just taking elements of legit stories because he was studying serial killers extensively, mm -hmm. which is why it was also the the place where we're at is in Washington, which I happen to live in, which is serial killer land, which there's a lot of questions you may have about that location. But yes, there are um, some killers that crop up around here. Uh, so I think it was basically the time and the location was based off of just how much he had read about other serial killers. And it just happened to mm. be the most common time and place for this type of activity. Yeah. So you've been talking shit about serial killers and you live in a place that has a lot of them. So I apparently, yeah. Um, yeah. I, right. I actually watched recently um, an Anthony Bourdain um, special where he was in Seattle and mm -hmm. trying foods, but he was like, Every time he met up with people, he's like, so what's up with your guys' serial killers? <laughs> <laughs> like, to everybody he was talking to. But it is a thing out here. Like, there are some scary, scary people. It might just be because it's cloudy all the time and it just causes depression. I don't know. There's, there's a lot that could be discussed there, but... <laughs> interesting, interesting. Well, yeah, I just... Overall, this film was very provocative. Um certain levels of trollery I could sense in this movie being a provocateur at the same time, an exploration of, of Von Trier himself, his artistic endeavors, modes of destruction. Uh, there was just so much, there, there's, there's just art all over this. I, I, I really, I like this movie. Um, it, I, the morality aside wasn't a huge issue for me. I, I went into this hearing all these crazy things like this is, one of the most ultra violent films ever. People were walking out. It's, it's tasteless. You shouldn't watch it. Dude, go watch Antichrist 50 times worse. That's just not true. Like, I didn't feel that way at all in this. Uh, I think this is going to be a very misunderstood film, I think. So, um, I don't know. Uh, Fear Factor, I can't really rate this because I don't think it's meant to be particular or I don't think it's meant to be super scary. Although, again, I'm a dude. I don't get, you know, most dudes don't get killed by serial killers. I believe it's it's mostly females. So perhaps- Go by gross factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I go by gross factor. It's up there. I don't know if it's, if it's up there with Raw and Jim. I, that's going to be the standard. How close can we get to Jim yakking in Raw in these films? Antichrist wins, by the way. Worse than uh, Audition to me is the scene where he's coming blood. Never, that won't leave my mind. I've seen like fucking live leak Russian dash cam footage. Nowhere near Antichrist. Nowhere near Antichrist. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I, I give this movie maybe overall, I, it's, man, seven out of ten. I don't know, three and a half stars, something like that. I, it's, I, I think it's novel. I think it has a lot of things to say, and I think there's something unique about raising the profane to the level of discussion when it comes to aesthetics. Um, I like that. I mean, that's kind of what this podcast, <clears throat> to a certain extent, is about. I think Shara talked about this earlier. So. Um, Yay, I, I'm a fan of this. Um, I will be seeing if Montreux makes any more movies. I don't know, talks of his retirement, although he's been saying that for like a decade now. Um, I will watch everything he makes from now on. So there you go.
I will watch nothing he makes until <laughs> <laughs> like gym. Yeah. Um, until Ben makes me uh, watch it again. Uh, so yeah, I like the little. I hope I would. I pity the people who just listened to us because Ben gave the perfect kind of uh, finger steeple uh, thing there. Okay, so. Um, I give this film two stars for many of the reasons that I articulated throughout the podcast. Um, and But that's better than I thought I would be. Like, I thought for sure I would despise this film. I was I was dreading going into this. In fact, I tried to do a, a tweet that, that had, like, two opposing gifts right before I uh, about to wa- was about to watch the film. One of them was, like, about to watch... Uh, House the Jack Belt. Oh, fuck. And then the other one was uh, about to watch the House the Jack Belt. Let's do this! You know, those were my two uh, opposing point of view, and I really just spilled my beer all over the place. Um, so there's, it was, it was sort of this, uh, this mix of emotions as I was going into it, and I found it far more engaging than I thought it was. But still, I think if you're making a movie about how awesome you are and also how shitty you are, then it just becomes this solipsistic work of art that's that's located in the art tour to a point where there's almost no entry into into the film for the rest of the audience except to be revulsed. And uh, that, as an artistic aim, doesn't seem particularly... Um, it's not an artistic aim that I'm particularly interested in exploring with you, Lars von Trier. Um that said, I, I got to say that it's capably made. I like Matt. D- I've always liked Matt Dillon. I think he's far deeper of an actor than we've ever given him credit for. Um, and I liked uh, some of the performances, the writing, the imagery, all of the things that Von Trier does well. But overall, I just can't. I can't bring myself above a two to the point where I would recommend it for somebody. Um so I, I think I'm giving the film as much credit as I can give it without also recommending it and and um, going going into the two and a half three range. Um, I think it, there was another point that I made. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is sort of how I feel about, and this might be a little bit tangential, but I, I trying to articulate this point. The way I feel about von Trier's work after. Um, after Antichrist and into Nymphomaniac was that I, I, maybe you, maybe anybody else has these types of people in their life too, who, um, for example, Star Wars, they, they cannot relate to Star Wars. They think it's just space wizards with laser swords and it's not a thing, but then, and you're like, no, but the human and it's a mythology and Joseph Campbell. And they're like, I just can't connect to it because it's so foreign to it's so foreign to my world and my relationships and the people that I interact with and how I negotiate the planet. It's so outside of the way I I um, negotiate the planet, the the way I, I I relate with the world that I just can't connect with this thing. And I feel the same way about von Trier's work. His work is so nihilistic and so um, um, sort of bathing in degradation and nihilism to the point where it fails to have a connection to the world that I look out there. And 
This is not because I'm not an unhappy person. Believe me, I am. I think that the world is an awful place, but it's just not as awful as Von Trier uh, makes it out to be. And and it, and it comes. So there's. It's it's not because it's not because I totally disagree with him. It's just the degree to which he is so bathed in this nihilism. Um, and, and and that makes it more difficult for me to uh, to connect to his work. Um, so that's why I'm I'm at I'm at two. I don't know fear or gross out or whatever. Uh, I think you're right, Noah. That uh, raw for me was a kind of film, and uh, and Antichrist is certainly more violent than this. So it's not it's not terrible in that sense. Uh, the the breast cutting scene was what uh, prompted most of the walkouts. And that was um, not as bad as I thought it would be, even though of course it's disgusting. So uh, that's my summation. I'll sort of throw it on to the next person. I'll let Ben go last since he's, this is his movie. He should, he should finalize this. I think, I think you should have the last word. I think because it's your piece, but uh and and I would like to say the the nipple wallet, uh, like dude, there was a literal serial killer that had a nipple belt of a bunch of boobs like interconnected to make a belt. So that's I think he was actually trying to take real serial killers and and put it out there. And if that's what freaks people out, like this is reality. This actually happened in real life. They put a face on a lampshade. Like there there are messed up people in the world, and the idea that people are afraid of reality is kind of why I like talking about horror movies, honestly, because the world is not so pretty and happy in Disney tra-la-la princess land. So I, I appreciate giving a call out to reality. Um, so yeah, that, that didn't bother me either. But um, this film was, I, I had no idea anything about it, by the way. I did not read anything about it before I went into it and I watched it today. <laughs> so I went in just, let's, let's try something. Um, I found out, though, that the reason why it was so long, two and a half hours long, was because it was supposed to be a TV show. And that's why you have these, like, five different sections of the film. That's why it's so long. So that makes it make more sense to me. Uh, when I read that before I watched it, I was like, okay, this is just a TV show that I'm binge watching. I can do that in two and a half hours. Fuck yeah. And that made it a lot easier for me to digest, honestly. Um, but uh, I liked this film. I did not know that I would like a film like this. Um, even when it started to go into some of the more wild and crazy diving into hell, weird animations happening. Um, I, I, when we got to the end, I was sitting next to Daniel and he's like, what the fuck is happening? He's like held on to a surface. Like it was, uh, like he was unstable because the film was unstable. He was like, what I need to grasp onto an object so I don't fall. Um, and I think that's kind of the reason why I am drawn to a lot of his films is it, it makes you react. It makes you think. And as much as it is filled with ego, he does steady the topics that he's discussing to a point where you're like, I know exactly where he's going with this. And maybe others don't know what he's wrestling with or, or what stuff he's been studying. But because we're all a bunch of nerds, we know what he's talking about and we can easily dive into a lot of of what he's discussing philosophically in the films and it makes it more interesting to us maybe 
or maybe we're just fucked. I don't know. But I, I was fine with it. it. It felt like, you know, when you're a kid and you just like, oh, I know this pool's going to be fine. And you jump in and you're like, yeah, good to go. That's what it felt like for me. <laughs> and I was fine with it. Um, I, I thought Matt Dillon's performance was insanely good. I, I think it is so good. Um, I He was so believable, so creepy. Um with the weird creeper glasses to the, the weird red cape thing looking like he's ready to go to hell. Like, oh, it, it, freaky, freaky stuff. Um, he really jumped into that character well. Um, the cinematography was dizzying and putrid. And I just, the part in the freezer where the camera's spinning around and all you see is these dead bodies blurring past you and it goes the other direction and you're feeling nauseous just watching it. I'm like, I know what you're doing to me and it's working and fuck you. <laughs> like, but it, like I said, it's, it's familiar and comfortable for me to jump into a piece like that. Um, yeah, he's a problematic person. Um, and he's being self-reflective, which makes it even more disgusting. And disgust is what you're supposed to feel, I think. I think that's supposed to be your reaction. I wasn't scared, but I was disgusted with a lot of the imagery and a lot of the, the stuff that was discussed. And I liked feeling uncomfortable. I liked thinking about things that are uncomfortable to think about. Um, and I think it's just because I'm a kind of a fucked person. So I, I enjoyed the ride. I think for bringing this film to me i i'm excited that i got to experience something that i was not planning on um i give it an eight out of ten and um i will probably be watching more of his stuff that i have not delved into yet i have not seen melancholia yet so i'll probably check that out even though i have seen the video of him saying some really uncomfortable stuff and, and kirsten being like stop uh that was actually one of the reasons why i didn't go into that film but this film made me really want to start analyzing this director more so yeah i just want to say my favorite body was grumpy just want to throw that out there before we give it over to ben grumpy was my favorite kill you're sick yep, yep. well all right so on that note let me let me see what i can do with this um yeah i was i was nervous to talk about this movie um for a lot of reasons like not just because we seem to have like a more people who are actually paying attention to what we say for some reason um, but because I mean, like there, there's a lot of pretty twisted stuff in this and it's, it's uncomfortable to try and explain why a person can appreciate a movie like this to somebody who doesn't appreciate it in the same way. Um, and so I know on this, this podcast slash show, we talk a lot about the difference between, um, enjoyment and appreciation. And like a lot of times we liken that to having a good glass of scotch, but then potentially just having like a, a you know, a Jack and Coke or something like that, but it's Jack and Coke. So I think I want to introduce kind of like a different dimension to this though. And I think there's for this, for this movie in particular, there's, there's a different spectrum that I can use. And I think instead of whiskey or, or scotch, I, I want to use coffee for this. So in the world, you have people, a lot of people who enjoy coffee, but for some people that means going to Starbucks and having a, you know, a fat free soy vanilla bean latte, blah, 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 whatever, whatever with five pumps of like sugar um, and that's what they mean by coffee. And what they really appreciate is, is more like, you know, a sugary vanilla flavored substance with a little bit of coffee in it. And I think that's going to be more akin to like everything that you would find in, um, in the conjuring universe, like all that stuff that we really, really hate on this show. 
in the middle, you're going to have people that enjoy normal coffee. And that's going to be somebody, it's going to be a wide ranging array of individuals who potentially could go into Dunkin' Donuts and maybe they have a varying degree of sugar or a varying degree of cream that they like with their coffee. But generally speaking, they enjoy the taste of coffee with just a little bit of window dressing on it. And that's going to be most of the people who enjoy coffee. And that's where that's going to be where you find, you know, the the stuff ranging from, you know, the the Freddy's, Michael's and Jason's to like the human centipede and saw and like all the stuff that's pretty popular, but still has like a degree of the the disturbing stuff within it that can still kind of make you reflect about death in a meaningful way, but it's still kind of like kind of dressed up. And then on the far other end of the spectrum, you have people who only enjoy coffee without anything else in it that comes from a particular region where the beans were sealed within a, you know, a vacuum packed seal so that the oxidation can be limited and it has to be brewed at a particular temperature. And I think really like when you when you come down and think about it like this is probably where the house that jack built the, the house that jack built resides is within this fringe um in the coffee world i think this this film would be kind of like the coat the the kopi luwak of coffees and of horror films uh you know you have the coffee beans a small animal ate them shat it out we cleaned off the beans pressed it into coffee and drank it. And that's the house that Jack built essentially. So like, I mean, there's, it's weird. You're kind of disgusted by it. Not most people probably aren't going to like drinking this. It's not going to taste good to them. But if you're into that kind of thing and you have the palate to discern the unique flavors within that coffee and it becomes an interesting thing for you, it's not because it's sweet and it tastes good. It's because you can sip it and have like an interesting experience from the flavors within the cup of coffee. Those are going to be the kind of people who appreciate this movie. That doesn't mean that it's better or worse than any other kind of horror. It just means that it's the pure shit and it might be too much for some people's palates because it's just it's too in your face it's too raw the uh, the emotions that it evokes are a little bit too intense and it definitely is on the dark side of the spectrum i think i i i definitely enjoy this movie um i would have to give it probably like four stars eight out of ten as well um not because like i enjoy watching this like i wouldn't go to the theater with a date and watch this movie and like have a good time have some soda and popcorn but it does make me reflect right i can watch this a couple times and i can have a good rich introverted experience about the things that this movie makes me think about in the way that i might go to a gallery and look at a, a painting and reflect on that internally about what that painting evokes within me um i wouldn't recommend it to anyone unless they're also the kind of person who appreciates that kind of thing but it definitely has a lot to appreciate um it's a difficult film it's challenging particularly because of the director but in some ways that also just sort of adds to the richness of flavor of what you're watching because the flavor is meant to meant to confuse you and make you feel a little bit bad right um yeah i don't know so like I, I don't know what kind of recommendation or like um any sort of uh consolation can come out of that but it is what it is it's an interesting experience the the emotions and experiences painted for you within the canvas of this film i think is is compelling um and i i really appreciated it for that reason Quote of the night, this is the pure shit. This is the pure shit. That's a great analogy with the coffee. I, I think you're I think you're spot on. Um I feel like any future Von Trier film is gonna so, so we gotta think about how to go forward. Like if he makes another movie, I, I there's so much to sort of I feel like going in this may be a downside to me is that like the next film he makes, we're gonna have an a preset apparatus of 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 thinking about what that film's going to be. And I don't know if I like that. I guess you could say that of any director that you've seen a lot of films of. Um, but uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll just say this, hopefully he keeps making films like this, that that may be for people in that very end of the spectrum sort of coffee lover 
area. Um, because uh, if, if, t taking those seriously and critiquing them every once in a while is clearly worth it. Jesus, been here for two two hours, and it was going to be as long as the film was. This is this is nope. amazing. Yeah. I want yeah. my rom com, damn it! Yeah. <laughs> what a date with Tim ha Tad Hamilton too. Rom com. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys for for talking with uh, with all. Well, thank you, thank us all for talking tonight, everyone. Thank me, thank you. Let's just all ego everywhere. Hand jobs for everybody. That sounded awful. Uh, really appreciate you guys uh, doing this tonight. Um, we are doing Get Out in two weeks. Um, I, I assume everyone here will be here for Get Out. Um, that's going to be an interesting one. Nothing more fun than listening to four white people talk about the film Get Out. Uh, yeah, I I had this um, I had this weird conflict with myself where it was like um, I have someone that I know who I've talked to about this movie who hasn't been on the podcast before, a buddy of mine, um, and he, he's a black man, and we've talked about the movie, we've uh, talked it, about it a lot. Um, he's offered some unique insights to it, but then it's like if I throw a friend like that on the podcast. Now I have this token black guy up here, four white guys, and I'm going to throw this black guy up here and let's talk about this film that obviously has racial undertones. And I don't want to be that guy. At the same time, I also don't want to limit perspectives. So I thought what I would do is just say that, <laughs> like be upfront with it and that this is a conflict I am having on my end. I certainly want to add a perspective, but I don't want to come off like we're the people who did it just because it's a film that obviously has has a, a very heavy emphasis on on um, racial components and things that we'll obviously dive into when we do the podcast. So I thought what I would do is just sort of kick it off by saying it's it's a problem, it's something I'm thinking about, and I want to be as fair to everybody as possible. And I I'm just I'm trying to be empathetic, oddly enough. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm not sure what we're gonna do, but self awareness uh, like yeah. Lars. Hey, I'm trying. <laughs> is it enough just to be self-aware? The way I don't know. Yeah, this yeah. is the problem. Yeah, this is the problem, right? Like I'm I'm you know what, but that's I that's the next step for I'm just gonna throw it out there and say, hey, you know, I, I don't want to be a dick, I don't want to limit perspectives, but I also don't want to be that guy. Uh I think I told you guys this. I when I, I saw Get Out, um, I saw it at a place, I saw it in Dallas, Shayra, the same place you and I uh, saw The Boyd. Um, and they serve food and beer and alcohol. I may have told you guys this. Uh, and I saw Get Out in a room filled with only white people and all of the waiters there were black. And it was one of the most awkward moments of my life. I've never forgotten it. It made me feel incredibly weird. And um, I, it was one of the most odd movie-going experiences I've ever had. Um, I, it was hard to actually get into the movie because of that. I, I maybe I'm hypersensitive. Just from to now this. on, stay woke because yeah, that was I, the yeah. theme, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, it's one of those things where I, I, I want to find the middle ground between not being like too much of a social justice warrior, but at the same time having enough empathy to understand that there are things in this movie to which having a different perspective than what we usually have on this podcast is worthwhile. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but that's something I'm I'm thinking about. So I thought I'd throw that out there, at least make it make it known, because I don't want to, whatever I decide, I, I just want you to know that this is definitely something I've, I, I've been struggling with to a certain extent. But anyway, uh, yeah, so join in in two weeks. Who knows? Maybe, you know, I maybe we'll have a whole bunch of people on. Maybe it'll be different. Maybe it'll be just like this. Either way, it'll be fun. That's the point. The point is it'll be awesome and fun. Come join us as we suck down that great Colombian dark coffee, you know, just 
no sugar, nothing else, no milk, just the coffee. That's what you're gonna get here, just the pure shit. That's that's our new tagline, I'm changing all our marketing. Anyway, uh, join us in two weeks um, and uh, we'll see you guys then. I hope you guys liked the podcast, check us out on uh check us out on social media also uh jim has another uh, youtube channel called uh jim and garrett at the movies again greatest theme song you'll ever hear go check it out they've done some uh movies on black they've done a whole bunch of stuff on on stuff outside of the realm of horror black Klansmen. um i, I think jim's gonna do some oscar stuff a anyway check jim out on jim hunter out on uh on uh twitter uh, just because he's on like the news doing reviews of movies and stuff all of the time. He's famous. Jim is super famous. Yes, he's shaking his head, but he is, yeah, he might host the Oscars next year. My understanding is that correct, Jim? That's my yes, understanding. Yes, I will be. I'll be hosting the Oscars next year. That, that, <laughs> that is confirmed. It, it was. We tried to do it this year, but they wouldn't come up to my pay level. So uh, <laughs> I was like, I demand X amount, and they were like, Yeah, we can't do that. And so it looks like they're going to save up to uh, have me. But that's ridiculous. Yes, uh, well worth it. Well worth it. I'm glad they finally made that decision. So anyway, tune in as Jim hosts oh. the Oscars. Yeah, in all seriousness, we're doing Cold War and Casablanca on Tuesday. Jim and Garrett at the movies is doing Cold War and Casablanca on Tuesday. So we'll look forward to look forward to that. So. And and as always, uh, do not listen to the podcast while you are driving because you will crash your car at the beginning, um, like I almost did. So anyway, uh, thank you guys for watching. Join us for Get Out. Check us out on social media. Um, if you liked what you saw, if you have, if you disagree, uh, shoot us a message. Anyway, thanks for watching. We'll see you guys in two weeks.